When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken. Today, we're gonna be covering the book of Ruth and the first seven chapters of Samuel. Yeah, some amazing material, especially after last week's dizzying spin through the pride cycle in the book of Judges. I'm hoping that today is just what the doctor ordered to help you recalibrate and get your bearings once again. I've read that when figure skaters, for example, are spinning so fast, how do they not get dizzy and just fall down right afterwards? And it's that they try to keep their, their eyes fixed on a, a stationary point. And yes, as they're spinning, their heads have to spin around, but they'll hold that gaze as long as they can and then flip their head around and get back on it as quickly as possible. And to me, through the dizziness of the Pride Cycle and the Book of Judges, a really good fixed point to concentrate on is the Book of Ruth. Because the Book of Ruth grows out of the same time period that we studied last week. So despite the fact we saw so many falls into pride and wickedness and destruction, here today we see a story of two women, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, who are worth concentrating on. And whenever you get pulled down towards pride, look to the selflessness of Ruth and Naomi. And I think selflessness, like humility, like meekness, like so many other divine attributes, are a wonderful cure for the kinds of problems that bring us down the pride cycle like we saw last week. Uh, you get this hint in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning. It says that in, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So that sets the context for what we'll be studying today. The same time period. And if you remember what the verse that came up several times, we see it clearly right at the end of Judges 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Remember, we saw that four times, I think, last week. And then what describes the time period perfectly, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so there's the moral relativism that, hey, if it sounds good, looks good, feels good to me, then there should be no one standing in my way. And with no king in Israel, there was no one standing in their way. But I do wonder about... I mean, so often in Scripture, when it speaks of mankind, or here, every man, that's just unfortunate gendered language, but it describes everyone. In this case, though, I, I wonder if we really can focus it just on the, the exact word man. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, because today's focus on women, Ruth and Naomi, will help us see that those two, at least, did not do what was right just in their own eyes. Actually, maybe, maybe I should take that back. It was right in their own eyes, but not only in their own eyes. It was right in the eyes of God. It was His commandments. It was His law of love, His desire to help us overcome our, our natural man or woman. And I think by internalizing His will and making it their own, by internalizing what was right in God's eyes, until it became right in their own, that's not moral relativism. That is, that is understanding absolute truth as revealed by God himself. 
the way, the truth, and the life. And we will see a way and the truth and the ultimate kind of selfless life in the stories of Ruth and Naomi today. They, they shine brilliantly, especially against that dark background of everything we studied last week. So let's dive in. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, again setting the stage. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, you couldn't have a better setup for this story than this one. A famine in the land, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, Amos is going to use this metaphor, a famine for hearing the word of God. And the people would be running to and fro, north to east, looking for the word of God and unable to find it. Well, you see a similar metaphor here. A literal famine in their case, but also a spiritual one. Even to the point that this man of Bethlehem, Judah, now Bethlehem, we think of Jesus' birth, obviously, but the word itself, Beth, Beit, means house, and Lechem means bread. So Bethlehem means house of bread. What better place for the, the bread of life himself to be born? But to think of this man who lives in the house of bread, if there's ever a place that should be immune to famine, it should be Bethlehem. And yet there he finds no bread and so has to leave to find it elsewhere. And where does he go? He goes to the country of Moab. Now the Moabites we've seen throughout the the wilderness wanderings and the journeys through the wilderness toward the promised land. Moab uh, comes from the children of Lot. If you remember that strange story at the end of Genesis 19. And so there is some, some common heritage, some common ancestry, but for the most part, there's been some friction between the Moabites and the Israelites. But, oh well, there's nothing in my own territory uh, to hold on to. There's no food here. And, and my only hope is to go elsewhere. I do worry sometimes when we think of, well... I work so often with people who are struggling in their faith, and often when they tell me their stories, I can't blame them at all for for leaving because what they faced among church members, not church doctrine per se, not, I've often asked when they describe their problems and their, and their challenges and what they've gone through, if they consider this a top-down problem or a bottom-up problem. Top-down means this is just the way it's supposed to be and you've got to deal with it. That's seldom the case. More often, it's a bottom-up problem that this is just church members not living quite, well, not all Israel is, is of Israel, as Paul said. Not all Latter-day Saints, well, maybe we use this old term, not all Mormons are true Latter-day Saints. And I worry sometimes if people are right here within the house of Israel in what is supposed to be considered the house of bread and yet finding no food for themselves. And, and what are they supposed to do? So often they do end up looking elsewhere and outside, even back to Moab that hasn't had the fullness in a long, long time. But if there's bread there, if there's something sustainable, then I'm going to go anywhere I can to find it. We guardians of the, of the storehouse, we who live here in Bethlehem, in the house of the bread of life, we have to do better at making sure people can find sustenance here. Otherwise, they will go to Moab or somewhere else. 
Verse 2, the name of the man, this man who left, was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Mahlon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Now here we see the beginning of our cast of characters. And as was so often the case in the Old Testament, names mean things. Uh, we don't know if they were named this before. In many cases, I doubt it. But, or if after the fact, names were changed or names assigned to these figures to help later people remember them, okay? Because the names really are symbolic. For example, Elimelech, Eli, El is God, Elohim, right? Eli, E is the, the, the suffix for my or mine. So Eli means my God. Melech means king. So Elimelech means my God is king. Remember last week we met Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who didn't want to be king himself and didn't want his sons to be, but Abimelech, Abi, my father, is king. And sadly, you know, it wasn't his heavenly father that he was referring to. He wanted to be the, the son of a king and a king himself, and so that's the name. I, I love that, that juxtaposition. Last week we get an Abimelech, this week we get an Elimelech. Uh, so much better to put... The, the crown on, on the brow of him who deserves it, God. Well, Naomi, her name means my delight or pleasant. We'll see Naomi herself have, use a, a play on words with her own name uh, shortly. And then here's, it got, definitely got to be a, a, a play on names or a name assigned after the fact because no good mother would name her children this. Malin means sickness. And Chilean means pining away or weak, uh, weakening. And, and yes, I, I doubt I would, <laughs> I would want to name my children anything along those lines. But in terms of the part they play in this account, those titles are, are incredibly accurate. You see this in the next verse. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So again, no wonder that they are titled sickness and weakening, because they did weaken and, and sicken and die, leaving Naomi, this pleasant, delightful person, in bitterness and completely alone. Well, not completely. You met here two other characters, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah is actually where Oprah gets her name. Just switch the R and the P. Orpah means gazelle or mane uh, because it comes from the, the root word meaning the back of the neck. Now that also might be a, a name title uh, assigned to her since she does end up turning away from Naomi. I can't blame her for this. She's not uh, a wicked character by any stretch of the imagination, but she does turn away from Naomi, so Naomi does see the back of her neck. Ruth, meanwhile, means friend. And oh, amidst all the enemies of Israel all around them, uh, we saw it last week with the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Midianites and especially the Philistines. So many enemies in, on all sides some would have considered Moabites enemies as well. But Ruth, this Moabitess, was a true friend. And we'll see that evidenced going forward. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. 
Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. I love how that's described there. I think if we saw every blessing from God as a visit from the Lord, see how he said that? The Lord visited his people in giving them bread. I think if we saw it that way, we'd have a much easier time recognizing the Lord's hand in our lives. But notice the order of events from Naomi's perspective. There is bread once again in the house of bread. The famine in Israel has ended. But first, Naomi heard of those blessings from God. Second, she arose out of her present circumstances. And third, she went in search of the blessings she had heard about. I think that's a great approach to follow. Where have you heard of God's blessings? Have you heard of the peace and reassurance and power that can come in the temple? Have you heard of the, the, the power of God that flows into your life the moment you begin serious study of Scripture? Have you heard of the power of service to draw us out of ourselves and our difficulties? Have you heard of God's hand in the lives of others? And if so, will you arise from whatever self-perception, whatever difficulties you're in, whatever sense of self or sense of the world, will you arise out of that and go in search of the blessings? You've heard of them. You know where they are. So go seek them. It's exactly what Naomi does. And she brings Orpah and Ruth with her. This is a good time to... The pride cycle is in some ways ending. They were never in it to begin with, it seems. But famine in the land may be one of the evidences of God's destruction to wake them up and turn them back towards him. Well, in a, in a geographic way, this does turn them back, and it's time to go home. Well, them, her. It turns Naomi back. Israel is her home. It's not the home of Orpah or Ruth. They had been home this whole time in a place that seemed to, to weather the, the storm or lack of storms, lack of rain, just fine. Uh, so in, this, in these next few verses, pay attention to how Ruth and Orpah react to Naomi and how Naomi reacts to Ruth and Orpah. Uh, you see a great example of hot potato with blessings. Uh, in Judges, it was tug of war. I want things for myself. No, I want things for myself. Here, it's hot potato. No, you take it. No, no, you take it. And instead of putting ourselves first, doing what is right in our own eyes, Judges, this is doing what's right by another person. And instead of selfishness of Judges, it's the selflessness of the book of Ruth. It's beautiful. So, verse 8, the story, the plot begins to thicken. Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, no mention of fathers there, even on Orpah and Ruth's part. Return to your mother's house. Are there just widows everywhere the eye can see? Well, considering all the war that we saw through Joshua and Judges, that's a possibility. Either way, return to your families by birth rather than staying here in this family by marriage. Because the only biological connection we had, you were connected to my sons, and I'm obviously connected to them. And so we were just, just in-laws. Well, if you have as in-laws as good as mine are, then it's not a just in-law. And I don't refer to them as father-in-law and mother-in-law. I just call them mom and dad, and they, and they feel like they are. Uh, the same was true here. And so, verse 9, Naomi goes on to her daughters-in-law. 
or just daughters as she felt of them, the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now, wait a minute, the house of her husband, her husband, their husbands are gone. Naomi knows that. She referred to that in the previous verse. You have dealt with the dead incredibly kindly. You were good wives. You have dealt with me incredibly kindly. You've been amazing daughters-in-law. I pray that our God, even though he's not your God, will deal kindly with you. All that was verse 8. And then verse 9, here's this, this prayer to be a little more specific. How might the God of Israel bless you in helping you find rest in the house of a husband? And what Naomi assumed is that that husband would be a Moabite right here in your land. There's no reason for you to go back with me. There's nothing there for you. There's nothing I can give you. And so may you find rest here. And a new beginning, a fresh start, uh, remarriage among your own people. People that haven't suffered quite as much as the Israelites have for this last little while. Now, the word rest, that was what the Israelites were seeking when they left Egypt. Well, that's what they were seeking as they went through Moab the first time on their way to the promised land. To enter into the rest of the Lord. Which rest, DNC 84 defines, is the fullness of God's glory. Well, Naomi was going to get more than she asked for in that prayer. Because the Lord did want to give his children rest in terms of a fullness of glory. And that wasn't just a remarriage in Moab. There's something more than that. But here in verse 9 and then in verse 10, I want you to ask yourself these questions. When Naomi says that to Ruth and Orpah, what's that going to mean for them, Ruth and Orpah, versus what's that going to mean for her, as in Naomi? By saying, stay and find a new husband and may the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, bless you and give you rest. For Ruth and Orpah, that's going to mean wonderful things. Like I said, a fresh start, a new beginning, security, and, and a husband to provide for them. But what is that going to mean for Naomi? If Ruth and Orpah take her up on, their, on her suggestion, total loneliness. I've lost everything, my husband, my two sons. And if you'll take my advice, I'll lose my two daughters-in-law as well. And how on earth I will provide for myself. Being a woman in the ancient world was difficult, but being a widow was even worse. Throughout Exodus, we saw it over and over the Lord saying, make sure you are careful the way you treat widows and the fatherless and the strangers he's going to bring up as well, foreigners. Well, this story is about all of that, widows, foreigners. God has a soft spot in his heart for the destitute, the vulnerable, those that have no one to provide for them but him. And that's exactly what Naomi is suggesting for herself if they follow her advice. There's selflessness personified in this, this weeping widow who is not quite feeling the weight of her name. There's no delight here. The nothing seems pleasant. But at least there might be some pleasantness for you. And it's them that she's thinking of. Verse 10, the roles reverse. Actually, finish verse 9 first. Then she, Naomi, kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. 
this was going to be a hard departure. In fact, they didn't want there to be a departure at all. That's why verse 10 says, They said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Now there's true sisterhood. There's loving support. But again, what would that have meant for each party? If they stuck with what they said in 10, for Naomi, that would be wonderful news. The exact reversal of what she had suggested back in verse 9. No, Naomi, we're here for you. And thus, in your old age, since it's probably far beyond the chance for you to get remarried and be provided for, allow us to provide for you in our own way. We'll come and, and be your support. But if that's good news for Naomi, what does it mean for Ruth and Orpah? Is it bad news for them? Because they will be giving up any opportunity to be married to a fellow Moabite. They've been living at home this whole time, these 10 past years. But for them to uproot with no promise of a future in Israel, uh, in some way, again, as we've seen repeatedly, Israelites weren't supposed to marry outside the covenant. And so, oh, what were Malin and Chilean doing to begin with, uh, taking on Ruth and Orpah? Oh, there's, there's something selfless again here from the other side. Hot potato, like I said. Ruth and Naomi is saying, it's not about me, it's about you. And Ruth and Orpah are saying, no, it's not about us, it's about you. Beautiful selflessness here. But Naomi's not going to have anything of it. Verse 11, she says, Turn again, my daughters, yeah, not in-law, just my daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. More selflessness on Naomi's part. These marriage ties that had bound her to her daughters-in-law had been dissolved, like I said, and so uh, it's going to be every woman for herself. No, no, not as far as Ruth and Orpah are concerned. Every man for himself, that was judges doing what was right in their own eyes. It's not going to be every woman for herself. It's selflessness on their part. But the way Naomi says it gives you an, a clue as to what she's thinking or perhaps what she's thinking Ruth and Orpah are thinking, when she says, I'm too old to have an husband. Well, what does that have to do with them? Uh, if she's trying to convince them to stay, that's the last thing that they would want to hear. I know you're too old to have a husband. That's why you need us, daughters-in-law, to help support you. But it's clarified in verse 12. She goes on, if I should say I have hope, I hope to have a husband, and despite my advanced age, if I should, if I should say that, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, now is where it turns to Ruth and Orpah. Would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Now there's a lot to unpack in those verses. If I have hope, which suggests that Naomi has none, that she is in a hopeless condition, but she wants to keep that hopelessness to herself. She doesn't want to spread it to people that, that she loves. At the end there, when it says, I grieveth me for your sake, I'm more concerned about you than I am about myself. My heart breaks because of what you've gone through. You lost your husbands. Although she could have easily said, those were my sons. You had them for 10 years. I've had them their entire lives. I know what it feels like to be a widow since I lost my husband. 
but also to have lost my two boys. Naomi's loss is so much greater than Ruth's or Orpah's, but she doesn't put it in those terms. It grieves me for your sake. I think too often in our attempts to be empathetic, we end up just talking about the hard things we've been through. We sometimes try to offer a a comforting comparison that doesn't end up comforting very well. Oh, I've, I've had it worse. So, so you should feel better about the situation you're in. No, Naomi doesn't make that mistake. She doesn't, she doesn't say, I've, I've had it worse. And so be grateful for what you've got and go on living. No, I'm hopeless, but I, I'm more worried about your hopelessness. And so have some hope and go back. And your hope shouldn't be in me giving you children, or excuse me, giving you husbands. I did that when I was young. I can no longer do that now that I'm old. Oh, one other thing. When it says at the end, it grieveth me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, we're going to see this more clearly in the book of Job. That in Job, there's this sense, and we see it in the book of Mormon. I think we all kind of assume it in ourselves, unfortunately. It's that if bad things happen, it's because you deserved them. Uh, and the whole book of Job, we'll get there in a, in a while, will completely turn that on its head in important ways. But Naomi is under the same understanding. It's, uh, it's true in some ways, in some cases. Uh, we do, well, we saw this, I've set before you life and death, and so choose life. Uh, if you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. Well, that's true, but flip it around. Oh, I've been cursed, so I must have disobeyed. That's the part where the logic falls apart. Okay? That's the part where the reality isn't quite true. And so here's Naomi blaming herself. No wonder she's hopeless. Hopeless for a future for herself. If my present is so abysmal, because of something that I've done wrong, the hand of the Lord is against me. Was it because I, I left Israel? I should have had greater faith that God would assuage the famine there and send rain. Was it because I allowed my sons to marry outside of the covenant and marry Moabitesses? What? I've done something wrong and it's my fault. And unfortunately, the consequences of my poor decisions haven't just affected me. They've affected everyone around me. And so I am sorry, my daughters. Go save yourselves, and I will go face my punishment alone. One last thing. Would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Again, what she's getting at is it's too late for me to give you another set of husbands. Uh, and since our in-law relationship has dissolved, there's no relationship left, and I can't give you another one to resurrect it. This would, that would be a miracle on the part of, of Sarah giving birth to Isaac in her old age. And even if that were possible, she's hinting at in these verses, even if I could, let's put it best case scenario. Let's say I did have hope, all the hope in the world, and we rush back to Israel. I find a husband on day one. And uh, this wonderful man that wants an, uh, an, a little old lady as his wife, let's say we get married on day two, and then we get pregnant on day three, and we get, I give birth to twin sons on, on nine months and three days in. Uh, maybe they're even a little premature to speed up the process. I don't know. 
But if that were best case scenario, would you still be willing to tarry for them until they were old enough to marry you and give you posterity, which in fact my own sons were never able to give you? Ruth and Orpah had no children. There seems to be barrenness on that side of things. We'll see a change of that later. But you see what, what she's getting at? Even best case scenario, would you be willing to wait that long? I mean, does, I'm grateful for your loyalty, but doesn't loyalty have limits? And, and time constraints that I can only stick around for so long. And yet, I'm amazed by people who are willing to tarry and stay in difficult circumstances in order to selflessly offer whatever they have to give to other people who are in, in need. I was about to say in greater need, but it might even be lesser need. And yet, what is, what's Ruth going to prove? I'm going to go with you. We'll see that unfold in just a second, but to tarry, to stay, to wait. I've got a brother-in-law who's just a, as good as gold. A brother that feels more like a brother than a brother-in-law. And when he was in college, he, wanted, he went on his mission. He returned. Phenomenal return missionary, ready for the next mission in life, which needed an eternal companion. And he did everything within his power, dating and meeting people. And, and he was just, a, he's an amazing person, but it just wasn't happening. And he wasn't finding... Oh, his eternal companion yet. And we all wondered why. Well, he especially wondered why. But what was amazing is to see what he did in the meantime with his roommates. He wanted to have a single roommate. Uh, well, as his married roommate. He wanted to, to find a spouse. And yet, what he did among his roommates with companionship scripture study and companion apartment prayer, uh, continuing the life of a missionary... Uh, post-mission and and rallying the troops and helping them spiritually through the whole process. Two of his younger brothers ended up becoming his roommates later on. And the kind of spiritual influence he had upon them. I, I know that if you asked him, was it worth tarrying for them? Was it worth staying? I know it wasn't technically your choice. Now, if you could have been married earlier, you would have been. But making the best of a difficult situation and, and staying in that holding pattern where you had a profound effect upon your younger brothers. I know that he would say, yes, it was worth tarrying for them. And now he has an incredible wife and four amazing little boys and, and life is good for him. But to me, again, there's something powerful about being willing to stay in holding patterns. Looking around with every lap, not just for the blessings that seem to keep passing you by, but for the way you can be a blessing to people in need all around you. It's exactly what, what Ruth is going to be willing to do. In verse 14, they, these two daughters-in-law, lifted up their voice and wept again. There's still this heartbreak are they weeping for themselves, thinking that, yeah, how's that going to work if we go forward? Are they, perhaps, they're definitely weeping for Naomi, knowing that what their decision, if they end up opting for their own future, will, will destroy the future of Naomi. 
There's tears all around and they're all justified. But then this, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. I love pointing out to my young students that there is a difference between kissing and cleaving. There is a difference between compassion, which both women feel, and companionship, which only one woman is willing to offer. Again, I am not trying to, to demonize Orpah. She's wonderful. Her heart is in the right place. She has been side by side with Ruth this whole time, with Naomi this whole time. But when it finally came down to it, her decision was practical, to be honest. It was pragmatic. I, those are two of my gifts, so it makes me worried or wonder, would I have done the same? You know, you're right. Um, how much good can I do you? Uh, a lot. But at what expense to myself? And as we're balancing out the scales, then uh, perhaps it really would be wiser all the way around. I'm really sorry, Naomi. I, I weep for you. Um, I, I wish there was more that I could do. But you're right. And for my own future's sake, I, I have to move on. Now, there may be times in our life where that is true. This is, a, this is a hard one, and I'm not going to pass judgment on anyone who makes a decision one way or the other. Uh, they have to make that difficult decision, and I pray that the Lord is part of the decision-making process. But while Orpah kisses and leaves, Ruth cleaves and stays. Like I said, there's a difference between compassion, I feel with you, and companionship, I'm going to stay with you. And feeling for someone versus honestly staying with them. And, and you can't get rid of me that easily. No, this is selflessness to the very core on Ruth's part. Verse 15, Mother, Naomi, says to Ruth, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people, unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Your nationality should bind you to your nation. You're a Moabitess, stay in Moab. Your religion should keep you centered here with your own Moabite gods. And look at your sister-in-law, Orpah. She was the practical one. She was pragmatic. She did what was best for her, just like I suggested, just like I encouraged. You should do the same. And Ruth could have. But she says in 16 and 17, famous, famous verses, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. So please don't ask me again to leave. When we quit this going back and forth, insisting that the other person should put themselves first, no, I'm putting my foot down, mom. Please quit asking me to leave. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord, that's your God, Jehovah, the Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. I don't know if there's a more powerful verse on loyalty and companionship in all of Scripture than that, spoken not by an Israelite, but to an Israelite, by someone outside the house of Israel who, in these words, is willing to come in 
The, this is a verse of true conversion. And it's not just conversion to God, it's companionship with his people. This is the two great commandments. This is setting up the cross, the vertical. I want to have your God as mine. And the horizontal, I want your people to be my people because you are mine, mother. And I will care for you as you cared for me, as you cared for my husband from birth onward. There's such power here. If you take each Oh, each verb and couple it. There, there's these three pairs that I think are powerful. Where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Now, it's one thing to go with somebody and get them to their destination. And then we good. Can you handle it from here? Because I got I got to go back. No, to go to take go and then sanctify it even higher. Lodge. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay with you. The next set thy people and thy God. So again, it's one thing to just oh, claim the neighbors or, oh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, but I'm not a Roman. Well, no, I'm going to go and be an Israelite indeed, and not only in name. I will take your people as my own. And if that's not enough, just the social sphere, the religious one is even deeper. Social, it's like when people say we're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. And it's like, oh, well, how dare we talk about politics uh, as far, because that's how we think society should go. And how dare we talk about religion since that's how we view reality itself. Well, she's willing to, to do both. She's willing to talk politics and as far as change her social structure. I'll be an Israelite, just like you are. And even deeper, to change her religious worldview. Reality itself. I see things as you do. And then the last pair, where you die, I'll die. And again, sanctify it, take it up a notch. Where you are buried, I'll be buried too. Do you remember Joseph of Egypt and his father Jacob, both of whom died in Egypt, but made their, their posterity swear, do not leave me buried here. Eventually, you're going to get out of Egypt and head back to our promised land. Dig me up and take my bones with you because I, I refuse to be buried permanently outside my promised land. It was a big deal in the ancient world where you were buried. Remember the great sacrifice Abraham made to find a place of burial for his beloved Sarah. Now to think of what Ruth is offering here. It's not, just a, it's not just a momentary go. It's a willingness to stay and lodge. And it's not just lodge for a while. It's lodge until death itself. This is, this is a permanent change. And not just till death do we part. Even after death, I will stay with you. I'll be buried alongside you. I am going to... Hitch my wagon to yours and go wherever it leads. And if I don't, notice how she says at the end, then may God, your God, that you think has punished you for whatever you think you've done wrong. Well, this is my sense of what I would be doing wrong if I abandoned you here in your moment of greatest need. And so I won't do it. And if I did, then God could do to me even more than whatever you think he's done to you. I'm willing to to risk that because I will not risk my relationship with you. I am so moved by those verses.
what Ruth has said there. I am willing to put my life on hold. To give you comfort and help and blessings. And I can't think of a more Christ-like thing to do. I can't think of a more motherly thing to do for this childless, childless Ruth who's about to become a mother in Israel by the end of her story. Oh, beautiful. In verse 18, when she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. She finally relented. And how could she not be? Uh, this is going to be a battle of wills. And they both seem to be iron. It was, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you. And finally, when, when, when Naomi saw Ruth's Oh, celestial stubbornness, can we call it that? Here it was steadfastly minded. It's like, whoa, you're not going to take no for an answer. You even told me, quit asking. I've said this before. I see this when my father-in-law and my brothers-in-law go out to dinner, and it is the ultimate hot potato on, on who's going to put the other person first or flip it around. It is a true tug of war over the bill, and I, there's no way you're going to pay. And I've seen my brother-in-law call the restaurant on the way in from a different vehicle that my father-in-law is in just to tell the waitress, uh, this old man's going to come in and, and, and try to convince you to let him pay. You are not to do that. Take his credit card. That's fine. Pretend like you're going his way. But here's my credit card over the phone, and I'm going to pay for it in advance. Okay? I mean, I'm surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he's, I will buy your restaurant. Uh, if you, if, to make sure that the bill's on me rather than on someone else. And eventually, in this battle of wills, somebody has to lose. And Naomi realizes, I, I'm going to lose this no matter what. So I might as well lose graciously. And she left speaking unto her. I think there's humility and power in relenting when someone is just trying to serve you in a Christ-like way. I know they say better to give than to receive, but in order for someone to give, somebody's got to receive. And I know that's hard for us, oh, pioneer stock, and you do it yourself, and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and no, I'm, I'm going to put somebody else first. Give them a chance. Don't be selfish in your selflessness. And here you see Naomi being willing to to be first in someone else's life, despite the fact she had wanted the roles to be reversed. Selflessness through and through. Verse 19, So they two went until they came to Bethlehem, back to the house of bread. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? Now here you get a sense of the kind of person she had always been. Remember she, if I had hope, oh, it's hopeless for me. I have nothing to go back to, but at least there's food and the famine has ended. Well, I have a feeling that she underestimated herself. And that's true of people who tend to put other people before themselves habitually. No, when Naomi gets home, everyone, the whole city just, is Naomi back? Oh, we have missed you these, these years. But you're home again and we're delighted to see you. Remember that Naomi's name means delight. Well, verse 20, she plays that in reverse. She says to them, call me not Naomi, 
I'm not very pleasant anymore. I, I don't have anything to delight in. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Remember the waters of Mara back in the book of Exodus? I have only the bitter tears that are flowing now. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Again, probably considering herself guilty of some misdoing that has caused God to justifiably take away everything that matters from her. She describes it in verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? Sharing the common misperception of the time, that, like I said, we'll see in Job, she blamed herself for everything, and it is God testifying against me. I have no reason to delight over anything. I am Mara. I am bitter through and through. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And thus chapter 1 ends. But again, how do the people perceive her? Oh, Ruth the Moabitess. Naomi, ah, oh, is it really her? So excited to have you back. Who's this? She's not one of us. Even after the passage of 10 years plus, we remember you, but we don't know this person. Oh, but we know enough. She's a Moabitess. She's not one of us. She's a non-member. And I worry sometimes that we define people by what they're not instead of honoring them for what they are. We're going to see that perception change over the next few chapters. But the way chapter 2 begins, again, it's barley harvest. That'll come in, uh, be important in a moment. Verse 1, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz, which means that Naomi wasn't as alone as she had assumed she would be. Like I said, there is a town full of friends that are so excited to have you back. There also seems to still be some family related to your husband Elimelech. And this one, this kinsman, Boaz, is a mighty man and incredibly wealthy. You could have been provided for. Makes you wonder if Ruth is going to second guess her. So wait a second, mom, you, you're, you're going to be just fine. I, I, I can go back and, and follow Orpah's pragmatic example. No, she doesn't. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess, so that non-member, said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field. Not go back to mine, go to Boaz's. Let me go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she, Naomi, said unto her, go my daughter. Now, as far as Israelite culture is concerned and Israelite law, you have to allow the poor to glean in your field. That was... Oh, the, the social safety net that was set up. That was welfare. Uh, and it wasn't that we had to give them anything, but we should at least provide for them to take something for themselves. And so as we go through the harvest, do a good job harvesting your fields, but leave the corners alone so that people have something to, to subsist upon. And, and yes, be thorough, but not so thorough that you, you go back and gather every grain. Uh, do your work, but allow for some leftovers. And then the poor have something to provide for themselves. Well, I don't know how much a, a non-Israelite understands that. That seems to be uh, a, a very selfless, uh, like I said, social safety net. 
as far as Israelites are concerned. So that's why I wonder about Ruth's language. I'll go to the field of him in whose sight I shall find grace. I really hope there's someone out there actually kind enough to let me glean. That also suggests perhaps she knows just how, how awful people have become during these pride cycles. Because if there's so much idolatry in the land, and that was, a, I mean, that was the first of the Ten Commandments, no other gods before me. If they're going to willing to break that one, then imagine how easily they would break so, th this lesser one, especially since this is another chance to be self-serving. I can make sure there's nothing left for the poor because it's all, oh, it's all meant for me. No, Ruth is going to rely upon the grace of someone. And I hope someone is gracious enough to, to allow me. In verse 3, she went, she came, she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Now her hap, we would say she happened to go reap in Boaz's field. Oh, it just so happened. It, what a coincidence. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, wow, that this Moabitess would, would stumble upon oh, friendly territory. Someone who would see her with grace, or at least see her mother-in-law with grace. We're related after all. Well, was it mere coincidence? Or was this a tender mercy of God? He's the ultimate one who finds, who sees us with grace, and we find grace in his sight. In verse 5, Then said Boaz unto his servant, that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? So someone must be taking care of her. Who does she belong to? Whose servant is she? The servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, well, It's the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. I don't know her name. She's just a non-member. She's a Moabitess. But this is what she said, verse 7. She said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now, that she tarried a little in the house. Now, she didn't even have to ask. She, according to the law of Moses, it's your right to be able to go and glean. But whether it was, I just don't understand that law, or that's got to be too good to be true, or I will, this is my favorite one, I will not presume upon someone's grace. The way Paul talks about that in Romans, he calls it despising the riches of God's goodness. Presuming upon his grace. That, well, I mean, he said he'd forgive me, so put it on Jesus' tab. Oh, be careful about that. And here, among the poor, though they are entitled to help, she never ended up with a sense of entitlement. There's humility there. And there's hard work there. As the, as the servant says, she's been there all day. She started from the morning. She's been doing it all the way until now. At the end there where it says that she tarried a little in the house. That's a tough translation. Basically, she's just saying she took a brief rest in a shelter just to get out of the heat of the sun. But then once she was revived, she went right back out to keep going. This is a hard worker. This is someone who doesn't have a sense of entitlement. This is someone who asks for something she doesn't even have to ask for. This Moabitess seems, I don't know her name, but she seems as good as gold. Verse 8, Then said Boaz unto Ruth. So now we get a name, 
uh, Boaz uh, approaches her and communicates with her directly, probably so impressed, like, who is this person? I got to meet this, this girl for myself and find out whose damsel are you? Who, wh- what part of the family are you, are you from? He says to Ruth, hearest thou not my daughter? He just learned that she came back with Naomi. Naomi is related to, to Boaz, and so he's seen a familial connection here also. My daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Here's an offer of continual support, just like Ruth had offered Naomi. I won't just go, I will lodge. I won't just live with you, I'll, I'll die with you. I'm staying for the duration. And, oh, the bread she's cast upon the waters has returned unto her. And it didn't even take many days. The way she treated Naomi is now coming back to bless her in the way Boaz treats her, Ruth. And so stay here. It's it's interesting to think of, again, the social safety net, but thinking, seriously, do they have to keep coming every time to my field? There's lots of other fields here. And so... Didn't I already feed you yesterday? Go somewhere else. No, there's no tiring here. Stay here. Don't glean anywhere else. Abide fast by my maidens. I see in that uh, Boaz as a type of Christ. Again, there's not a presuming upon his grace on Ruth's part. So there's no limit to what I'm willing to offer you on Boaz's part. And the same is true of our relationship with the Lord, especially when it comes to sin and repentance and forgiveness. If I don't, as long as I don't presume upon his grace and just say, put it on Jesus' tab and and he always forgives me. No, if it's, please, I pray you, let me glean in your field. Will you forgive me once again? It's then that the Lord can say, as Boaz did, and as well, Alma tells us at the end of book, the book of Mosiah, as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. No matter how many times you come back seeking the bread of life, it's what I am. It's what I'm here for. So please keep coming. In verse 9, Boaz continues, Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them after my damsels, after my servants. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Oh, I love Boaz here. Think about the proclamation to the world and the family. And what does it say the role of a husband or father is? To preside, provide, and protect. Those three Ps. He's trying to help us men uh, with a mnemonic device. (laughs) Okay, don't forget. Well, to preside... We don't have to worry about that yet. Uh, Boaz ultimately will become Ruth's husband. Oh, spoiler alert. That's chapter four. But to see the, the other two Ps, the provide and protect, we see it in those verses. Come anytime you need food and glean in my fields. I will always provide for you. And it's not just the food. It's the drink also. And you don't even have to go to the well and draw it yourself. Let the, let the men do that. Okay. Uh, This is the role reversal of Rebecca and Abraham's servant. Let the young men draw the water and you go drink it straight out of the vessel anytime you're thirsty. 
especially if you're going to be out here from morning till night as you've been today. Yeah, feel free to go out under the shelter anytime you need some shade. Feel free to get water anytime you need it. Feel free to gather grain to make bread for you and for your mother-in-law. And be assured that not only am I providing, I'm also protecting. The, like I said, the challenge of a woman in the ancient Near East especially a widow or a single sister. It's not just how do I provide for myself, it's also how do I protect myself. We saw the way the book of Judges ended and the, the horrific story of the concubine of the Levite, where there was no protection, uh, only, only abuse, only assault, there was real danger there, and this happened in the days the judges reigned. And so, I will command my young men never to touch you. You will be safe here, under the shadow of my roof. In verse 10, what's Ruth's response? She fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground as we should do before our Boaz, our Savior, our Christ. She says to him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldst take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger, a non-Israelite? That's the word for it. Again, do you see yourself in Ruth? And do you see the Lord in Boaz, falling before him, bowing upon the ground, and wondering in, in grateful disbelief, how could you... Look upon me with kindness. How have I found grace in thy sight? Remember, that was what she was praying for. I just hope I hap upon the field of someone who might be gracious. And that's exactly what happened. But you took knowledge of me? Oh, my daughter, you called me. You saw a relationship where everyone else only seems to be to see distance and non-member stranger status. I don't know, maybe when you were a teenager, did you ever get noticed by someone that seemed out of your league? And just how that felt that they noticed me? Or maybe even more, they know my name? How is that even possible? And to feel that way, Ruth feels it toward Boaz, this mighty man of wealth. And for us to feel that toward the Lord, he knows who I am. Those are incredible experiences. But again, how did she see herself? I am a stranger. That's the first time she's used that word. But it's a common word in the Old Testament. And again, it means foreigner. I'm not one of you, and yet you treated me like I was? That's amazing to me. To think about, again, throughout the Old Testament, provide for the widow, provide for the fatherless, provide for the stranger in your midst. Treat them as one of the family. And again, in terms of Boaz as Christ, think about this famous verse from Matthew chapter 25. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Ruth had been all of these things. I was hungry, so I gleaned, and you let me. I was thirsty, and you told me to go to the vessels and, and skip the well. I was a stranger. I still am. 
And yet you took me in, you recognized me, you honored me for who I am, not just where I'm from. No wonder Ruth, again, this is Matthew chapter 1, the, the genealogy of Jesus. No wonder Ruth is one of the five women mentioned by name. When Jesus says, I was a hungered, I was a thirst, I was a stranger, I was Ruth. And I claim her as, my, as one of my ancestors. And, and to see him wanting to claim us, if we'll just be willing to claim him. In verse 11, Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, ultimate self-sacrifice, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. I don't look down upon you because you're a stranger. I look up to you because you're a stranger. You're willing to leave all of that behind, leave what you knew and come to start over? Wow, that's amazing. It actually hurts my heart sometimes to meet, for example, Latin American immigrants who have come to the United States and are striving valiantly to make a living for themselves and provide for their loved ones and yet face so much prejudice, so sometimes disdain or just false assumptions even being looked down upon because their English has a Spanish accent. And this isn't just true of Latin America. It can be immigrants from anywhere in the world. Part of me wants to push back about against anyone looking down their noses, saying, oh, you're, you look down because they have a Spanish accent? They speak Spanish natively, but they're speaking your language as a second language. Cut them some slack for crying out loud. How good is your Spanish? Do you still have a gringo accent when you try? Or do you not try at all? I'm, I'm so grateful that Boaz looks up to someone that everyone else seems to look down upon. You've left it all to come. That is courage. That's loyalty. That is love. How can I not be impressed? In fact, I've heard about this. It hath fully been showed me. Your reputation precedes you. And it's a, rep it's a reputation for incredible self-sacrifice. How can I not sacrifice? To, to honor you. One other thing, this is the story of every convert to the church who has come to a point in their lives where they have said to Israel, thy people shall be my people. As weird as you are sometimes. <laughs> and thy God will be my God because I've come to know him here in ways that I never had before. But that courage to come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore, and all of the, uh, the culture shock that goes along with that, the foreign language, so to speak, that you have to learn to speak Mormonese with a Catholic accent or a, a Protestant accent or whatever accent you came from, it's a powerful thing. And I hope you sense my gratitude, my just how impressed I am to anyone who has done that. The church is a better place for you coming in. And Israel's a better place for Ruth having come here too. So Boaz blesses her in verse 12. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. 
that verse, chapter 2, verse 12, is one that we have to hold on to for the rest of our story. A few things to unpack. First, the Lord recompense thy work. To recompense there means to repay. It's the same word in Hebrew used throughout the Exodus, for example, about making restitution for sin. So God is going to recompense you. He's going to give you a full reward, a complete wage. You're nobody's servant here, okay? Uh, you're going to receive all that the Lord has to, to offer you. Why? Because you have trusted in him. In fact, you've come to trust his wings. Think about that metaphor. How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? But ye would not, is how the Lord always ends that. He wouldn't have to say it to Ruth, though. But you would. You would come under. I called. I clucked. I raised my wings. And you came running. You have come to seek refuge here. And you are trying to provide shelter for Naomi. Allow me to provide shelter to you. You're not just trusting in Boaz's generosity. You're trusting in, in the goodness of God. Now, one thing you have to hold on to that we'll see in a moment, so tuck this away. Wing in Hebrew, yes, the word here, yes, it means the wing, like from a, from a hen. But it also is the same word used for any kind of extremity. It's used for the ends of the earth or the four corners of the world. Same word. It's used for the hem of a robe or garment. When the Jews were told to have a blue fringe or a blue hem around the robe and, and fringes there to remind them of God. Well, that's the wing. That's the skirt. That's the edge. I'm extending as far as I possibly can. The, the reach of the Redeemer. And, and to the ends of the earth, to the extremes of things. That's how far my wings will reach. By the way, that hem, that skirt, that edge... That's the exact part that another woman without any hope. Sound like Naomi? Sound like, like Ruth? This woman with the issue of blood reached out to touch the furthest feather of the hen's wing. She touched the hem of the Savior's garment. And virtue flowed into her out from that furthest extremity of Christ. There's something beautiful here about what she is trusting in. And again, tuck it away because we're going to see that word again translated differently. Verse 13, then she said, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord. She already had. For that thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of thine handmaidens. How does she refer to herself? Thine handmaid, in other words, thy servant. You are willing to treat me like one of your own servants, even though I'm not one of them. I'm an outsider. I'm a foreigner. I am a stranger. Oh, but stranger, I take you in. You're no longer a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. There's Paul's language to converts, Gentiles that are now part of the house of Israel. So many powerful examples here. I found favor. You spoke friendly. Do we speak friendly to people to whom we owe no friendship? Boaz did. Do we speak kindly to people that 
other people assume deserve no kindness? We should. By the way, that word kindly comes from the Hebrew word for heart or inner man or woman. You have spoken kindly, she could have said, you have spoken to the heart. And I, I hope we can do that for the poor and for the stranger, for the outcast, for the forgotten, for the vulnerable. Not just to recognize need and turn a blind eye and, and write a check and give it the office, but to speak to their hearts. I, I see that in, in my wife as she works with, with addicts, many of whom are homeless. And to see in her, I got to go to her, to her work one day to help her move some things in her office and to meet some of the people that she's working with and just to see nothing but full acceptance and love. No difference, no, no distance. It's a beautiful thing. It is grace, it is kindness, and she is reaching the heart, the inner person. It's the only hope we have to change. And so if we're hoping to, to reach someone whether they've left the church, whether they're struggling in sin, whether they are just distant from the family, it's the heart we're going to have to aim for. We're going to have to speak friendly. We're going to have to speak kindly. We can't, we can't treat them differently. In verse 14, Boaz says to her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread. So it's not just gather the grain and then make bread yourself. If you're hungry, come eliminate all the middleman and all that middle work. Just come and eat bread. In fact, dip thy morsel in the vinegar. Now there's an added treat, far beyond the mere minimum of allowing someone to gather your leftovers. The best I have is yours for the taking. I'm offering you that. Again, to see what Boaz as type of Christ and Christ reaching down even to our lowly level and saying, come partake of the bread of life. Dip the morsel in the vinegar. Vinegar, there's the fruit of the vine. It's just soured, right? Think about bread and wine. Here's the sacrament table being laid out before you. And though you have made mistakes, though you have distanced yourself from my table, come. Come boldly to the throne of grace, to this mercy seat, to the sacrificial altar, to the sacrament table, and take bread Eat of my bread, dip it in my vinegar. That those bitter tears, the bitter cup that I partook of to the dregs, come and feast upon what I am offering you. Boaz is such a perfect metaphor for all that Christ is doing for us. Ruth, meanwhile, sat beside the reapers. He reached her parched corn, and she did eat and was sufficed and left. That's a bad translation. Sorry, King James translators. Others, it says he reached her parched corn. No, he reached out to her with the parched corn, the parched grain. This roast, these roasted kernels. This is an extra treat. We've already cooked some things. Come and eat, have bread, dip it in the, in the vinegar. Here's some roasted grain. And eat all you want. When it says she ate and was sufficed and left, Again, that's the worst part of the translation. It's not that she left, it's that she had some leftovers. So again, Boaz is going so far above and beyond the minimum, just like the Lord does for us. Eat to your fill. This is the loaves and the fishes. 
I am multiplying them for you. And the multitude ate and was filled and there were still 12 baskets left over. Since I'm assuming you're probably going to get hungry later. And that's the case for Ruth. And not just for Ruth, for Naomi also. In verse 15 and 16, When she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean. Uh, Again, he's trying to protect and not just provide. But how's this for provide? Let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. In fact, let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. You see what Boaz is saying there to his servants? We're all going to go above and beyond on this one. Okay? This foreigner, this stranger, she doesn't know how we do things here. Okay? So we're going to need to be extra reassuring. She's not presuming upon anybody's grace. Uh, and so we need to, to remind her. No, it's all good. It's all good. And in fact, in her case, let her glean among the sheaves. So the stuff you've already harvested, rather than having to go through the corners of the field or just go and pick up whatever the leftovers are, let her come to the granary itself and take whatever she, she wants. In fact, uh, in case that's too intimidating for her, while you're gathering grain for my granaries, why don't you uh, accidentally drop some, okay? It's not going to be accidental. That's what he says there. Let some of the handfuls fall of purpose. In other words, on purpose. Here she is just picking up a grain here and a grain there, whatever was left. And all of a sudden there's this big pile. How did this drop out? Okay. Okay, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, my servants. We're going to make sure she has plenty. And twice, he says, don't reproach her, don't rebuke her. Especially since she's new here. Let her learn, let her grow, let her figure things out. It is culture shock, joining the church. It is gradual becoming bilingual. It's making sense of a new people and a new God that you've chosen for yourself. And I think we can do a much better job of not rebuking and not reproaching when someone else's spirituality looks a little different than ours. I love what Joseph Smith said when people didn't believe him and they accused him of making up the first vision and all these things. It says, I, they should have been my friends. And if they thought I was wrong, they should have tried to reclaim me in a proper and affectionate manner. We can do better at that. People that are struggling in their faith, people that have left the church, we can be friends. We can be proper and affectionate in the way that we treat them. We can reproach them not and rebuke them not. And just hold out love and hope. That's what Boaz did and commanded his servants to do likewise. If, Joab, if, Mo, if Boaz excuse me, is Jesus, then who are the servants here? That's us. And what is he commanding us to do? Give. Be generous. Be kind. Be merciful. Be patient. Just be, be like me. You're my servant after all. And we can be more Christ-like. In verse 17 and 18, so she gleaned in the field until even, again, sun up till sundown. She beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her what she had reserved after she was sufficed. That extra then was meant for Naomi. Now, details here. An ephah of barley. Okay, how much is that? 
It's like if, if you don't know how to cook and you're like, is, what's the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon again? Well, if they're calling for a teaspoon of salt, make sure you didn't pull out the tablespoon. Okay, we, we need to know our weights and measures here. Well, back when we were learning about manna, there was a lot of talk of how much there would be. And it said that every day they would gather an omer of manna. And an omer was enough to get through an entire day. I can subsist upon an omer's worth of manna. In this case, an omer's worth of barley or wheat or whatever the grain might be. But it also says in that discussion of manna that 10 omers makes up an ephah. So again, forget about size and things. Think about how long can I live on it? And if an omer gets me through a day, then an ephah would get me through 10 days. And how much grain did did Ruth glean in that one day's worth of work? 10 days worth of sustenance. Oh yeah, these servants are dropping handfuls by accident, <laughs> on purpose. Glean in the, in the, in, in among the sheaves, come and get some bread and some vinegar and, and maybe she did and therefore didn't, wasn't hungry and didn't need any of that grain for herself. But whatever she ate and was filled and there was still some left over, she brings it all back to provide for Naomi. That's why she came back to Israel to begin with. Okay? Naomi is shocked by all of this. What, what on earth? How did you get so much food? Verse 19, she says to her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where rottest thou? Now, that's either a shock like, Uh-oh, you must have done something wrong. I should have explained this better. I shouldn't have just let, let it to chance, to hap. Oh, uh, where did you go? Um, you're not supposed to go straight into a granary. Just the corners of the field. Then again, it might be, Who on earth out there is so generous because most of the poor that go glean in the fields, you're lucky to get through your day. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us just enough to get through today. And the poor, it's going to be on an absolute subsistence level. They're still probably going to bed hungry, just waiting for sun up so they can go glean again. But no, who on earth is so gracious and good as to give with such generosity? Where did you go? Naomi says, Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And then Ruth showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought. She said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Now that name's going to ring some bells for Naomi. Like, seriously? No way. What are the chances? No coincidence here. Verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Can you believe that? You you happed upon the the perfect place. Because he's, he's one of us. We belong to him. Oh, thank you, God, for providing in such a beautiful, personal way. And even the way she says it, He didn't leave off his kindness to the living or to the dead. Some people's kindness lasts till death do you part. Not Ruth's. Even with the loss of her husband, I'm still still with you, Naomi. And here God doesn't just end things. He's continuing to provide things even after the death of my husband. And here Boaz will honor Elimelech, not just during Elimelech's life, but 
after Elimelech's death, he will provide for those that have been left behind. My, my aunt passed away unexpectedly just a few weeks ago, and it came as a shock to all of us. Oh, she and I were really close, especially the last few years. We compared scriptural notes all the time. She'd, she'd say, you keep wearing the same ties. Let me send you a new one. Uh, she was just a wonderful uh, fan of the scriptures, and we talked about it often. Uh, it was at the funeral, and her husband, I'm not related to, technically. Uh, but that relationship will outlast the life of the person that I'm blood kin to. And I felt the same when I got to meet one of my aunt's friends at the funeral. And though my friendship to her seemed only to be, well, there's a middle woman. You're, you're not a friend to me. You're a friend to, to my friend. Uh, or she's a friend to my aunt. And so we're, we're separated. We're removed. No. We, we shouldn't leave off our kindness at death. But allow it to go far beyond. That's what eternal families and eternal friendships are meant to be for. One other thing here, when it says he's our next kinsman, kin, there's something about family. And do we provide? Do we protect? Do we honor? Do we love? Are we loyal to? Even if we barely know them. But it's some distant relationship. You ever been to a family reunion and half the people you don't know, but you feel connected to them? I was asked to speak at a a Malin family reunion. Uh, and most of the people there still have the last name Malin. For me, it was daughter to daughter to daughter to daughter, and eventually came to me, and our last names changed every generation. But I went and was f- surrounded by strangers. That's the word for a foreigner, for Ruth. But boy, did we feel like family. And it was a beautiful thing. My wife, actually, it's funny, when we moved to Tennessee, uh, this, was, this was new to all of us. But then as my sister-in-law especially was doing some family history, she realized that they're Tennesseans for generations. And just a few generations removed from Tennessee. When we found out, I just laughed and t- turned to my wife and said, you're the one coming home. I, I married myself a Southern Belle. Uh, and what an honor. But it was funny, one time that sister-in-law, my wife's little sister, came out to visit. And the two of them went back to the ancestral home. Uh, they went, wanted to go back and see, okay, they were in this part of Tennessee, and they drove out there, middle of nowhere, uh, but wanted to find, are there any grave markers? Uh, can we f- see anything? Well, they were used to, like, city cemeteries, and that's not the Old South, where it's just somebody buried at the edge of some farmer's field. Well, they went into town, into, like, a diner or someplace. Uh, I mean, one of those little towns with no, no uh, traffic signals, right? But they found a place where maybe there's some old timers here who might know the lay of the land. They went in and looked for the oldest guy at the diner and sat down with him and said, or introduced themselves first and said, excuse me, um, I hate to interrupt your, your, your lunch, but we have ancestors that lived here in this town. Uh, and we're just wondering if you, maybe you've heard of this family or could point us in the direction of where they might have lived. I know this is a long shot, and this is Southern hospitality for you. He said, well, tell tell me their name. And they said, well, they were Hoopers. And the old man's eyes just grew big, and he said, Hooper? Y'all are kin. Sit down. Uh, Y'all are kin. Love that. You are, he is our next kinsman. And that sweet old timer, once he realized that they were kin, 
scrapped whatever he had on his to-do list that day and spent the rest of the day walking my wife and sister-in-law across farmer's fields left and right to show them where the family were buried. There's, oh, y'all are kin. And, and Boaz was kin. In fact, the word for kin, especially near next kinsman, some translations actually call it a kinsman redeemer. Now, if we can't be any more obvious that Boaz is our, our type and shadow of Christ, here's our kinsman redeemer. What they mean by that is a near kinsman is someone who will avenge you if someone does something against you. That's the concern, for example, about needing cities of refuge. Uh, a kinsman redeemer is someone who would raise up seed for you. That's the case of the law of leveret marriage. Remember that? So important to have children that if a brother dies, then the next brother-in-law is supposed to marry the wife so that they can have a child that belongs to the, the, the husband that's already died. Remember this? That's Judah and Tamar for you. Well, this is going to be an interesting situation since Ruth well, since Naomi has lost her husband and her sons, since Ruth has lost a husband, and who's the next kinsman who's going to redeem the family? Who's going to redeem the family name? Keep it perpetuating on behalf of the dead. Or if someone, for example, is in debtor's prison, who's going to redeem them by paying their debts? Well, they're next of kin. If they've if they've not only been sent off to debtor's prison, but if their land and property has been confiscated, then who can buy it back so that that inheritance can remain within the family? Well, someone within that family themselves, a kinsman, a redeemer. Okay, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Is that obvious enough for us? If not, it will be in a second. In verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess, again, reiterating her stranger status, said, he said unto me also that thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. Now that seems pretty innocuous, like, oh, so nice that you'll be with people that are kind and that who know you and go, you go hang out with his maidens and they, they'll, they'll meet you and you don't have to meet anybody else. Well, again, there are better translations than that. It's not that just, oh, who are you going to meet out in the field? It's, this is more of a scary, who's, who will you chance upon in your unprotected state? I mean, if you're lowered to the level of gleaning, then you have no one to provide and probably no one to protect you. And so talk about being exposed to people who you would not want to meet in a dark alley at night, or in this case, an abandoned corner of a field somewhere. What Naomi is worried about, and this was her worry all along, what's this going to mean for you? I'm worried about you coming back to Israel with me and leaving a promising future in, in Moab. I'm worried about you gleaning in the fields because you could be accosted, you could be assaulted. So other translations make that a little bit more clear. It's not about they, they'll meet thee not in any other field. It's I don't want you to be harmed or harassed or abused or assaulted in any other field. So stay with Boaz. Sure enough, verse 23, she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. To me, there's, 
a lesson we need to learn here from chapter 2 about where we are gleaning. In whose fields are we going to gather grain? All of us are choosing our mentors, choosing people that I want to learn from, for example. So often in college we think about where do I want to go? And as students have asked me over the years, how do I decide on graduate school programs and where should I go for school? I often tell them it's less a matter of where and more a matter of who. Who do you want to learn from? Who are you choosing to be your mentors? I'm so grateful for the mentors that I was blessed with in college and in graduate school. I'm grateful for the mentors God has given me through life. And I am choosing, hopefully intentionally, hopefully wisely, that it's not just I happened to, but that's a field I want to glean in. I want to learn from so-and-so. I want to associate with these kinds of people. I am grateful to glean in the fields of prophets, seers, and revelators. I'm grateful to glean in the fields of prophets past as well as prophets present. I'm grateful for amazing minds out there that write and that speak and that teach and that I can learn from. One of my favorite sociologists of religion is a man named Peter Berger. He is not a Latter-day Saint. He's a stranger, <laughs> but no stranger to truth and goodness. And one of my favorite quotes from him, he said that, we, that our realities hang by the thin thread of conversation. Love that. What's your reality? How do you view the world? It will most likely be, be influenced, in fact, largely constructed by your conversation partners. And that thin thread of conversation is what is holding up your worldview. So be careful about who it is on the, other line, on the other side of the line. Are you having vertical conversations with God? That's a good conversation partner. Who are your horizontal conversation partners? Because they will help determine how you view the world and yourself and God and everything else. So be careful in whose fields you glean. When I meet people that are struggling in their faith and they begin to raise their concerns, so often it's derivative. And I listen to them and I think, oh, I think I know who you've been listening to. I have a feeling you've probably read this and you watch this and you listen to this. And that's okay. I, I'm aware of those things because I've read it and I've listened and I've watched as well. Uh, but those aren't my conversation partners by choice. These are scripture, prophets and apostles. Uh, wise men and women, historians and philosophers and, and thinkers that help me tie into a divine reality that has blessed my life for decades. And so just my, my caution, the, the tiny pieces of the grains that you gather will end up becoming your ideology your worldview. And so often it's such a small grain, you don't think it's going to make a difference. But if that's what you're consuming bite by bite, then yes, that thin thread of conversation is dangling a reality before you that ends up becoming your own. My advice, my friends, based on Ruth chapter 2, is pray for good fields to, to glean in if you are wise in that. The things you're picking up on social media, for example. Oh, be careful. 
because you're determining you are what you eat. And, and so please glean in, in good fields with good grain. Chapter three of Ruth, then the plot thickens and gets a lot more complicated. This is a weird chapter. So let's try to make sense of it as we go. In verse one, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said unto her, my daughter, again, no need to mention in-law. I don't feel that way about you. You're a daughter in love, a daughter in life, not just a daughter-in-law. Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Now, rest was the word she used earlier. That's what I'm, I'm trying to give you. And, and this rest, I, I'm only thinking of you as always. And so I want it to be well with you. In this case, it's going to be husband is what she's thinking. Okay. Again, don't tarry for me. I'm not going to have sons that, are going to, that you're going to have to wait for. But maybe you won't have to wait after all. Is there a way that we can, we can oh, work some things on? Can we be more proactive? Can we be intentional? Shall we? Uh, because I want things to be well with you. I want you to find rest. Uh, by the way, rest here can also be translated a resting place or a place of security, someone to provide for you, someone to extend their wings to keep you safe. By the way, it's also a play on the word for Noah, as in Noah and the ark. Noah was a, his ark was a place of rest and security. The ark rested upon the mountains. All kinds of great plays on words in Hebrew. So, uh, Ruth, you're, you need an ark. And I'm going to find you one. I need to find a good Noah out there that's going to let you in. In verse 2, this is her first idea and her best one. Now is not Boaz of our kindred, we're kin, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now, threshing floor, remember, she's been working, gleaning all through barley harvest, through wheat harvest. He, he, he told her, come every single day, okay, I'll provide for you. Well, harvest is coming to an end, and it's time to thresh the wheat. And so that's kind of an all-day, all-night kind of a thing. They make it into a huge kind of feast and festival. It's going to be a festival of first fruits. And, th and so what can we do? Uh, they're out there. They work all day, and they, they rejoice all night and, and typically just spend the night in the field so they can keep working in the morning. And that's what's happening here. The fact it's at a threshing floor is beautifully symbolic. Because a threshing, remember to thresh means you beat the wheat out and so that the, the kernel of grain, what you want, separates out from the chaff and then you winnow it, you throw it up in the air and the, the weighty kernels fall back to the earth while the light chaff gets blown away by the wind. There's some great, oh, so many great symbols there, right? Anyway, uh, there's, that's where Boaz is going to be tonight. He's going to, to winnow on the threshing floor. Places where wheat and chaff are separated, places where you can judge between what to keep and what to leave behind, threshing floors are great metaphors for places of choice, the valley of decision, places of judgment. We'll see shortly, a couple weeks anyway, that a threshing floor becomes the site of the temple in Jerusalem. I can't think of a better place that separates wheat from chaff, a better place of judgment, a better place to really come to know what we are and who we are and, and separate what we want to hold on to from what we want to leave behind. So, so great. And so this, this scene in chapter 3 unfolds at that kind of a place. 
So let's make good judgment here, okay? Verse 3, Naomi suggests to Ruth, Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Now, washed, anointed, clothed. Sound familiar? Those are the words that were used for the priests and the Levites in the book of Exodus. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, we'll actually see those same three elements, washed, anointed, and clothed, in the context of a marriage. Hmm, what's on Naomi's mind? Uh, we got to get you ready for this. I mean, if, you've only, if Boaz only knows you as a gleaner, and you've been working from sunup to sundown, and only taking occasional rest breaks under the shelter, you're a, you're a sweaty, dirty mess. No offense, Ruth. But if that's all he knows, why don't you clean yourself up a bit, okay? So wash, anointed, There's, make yourself smell good, there's some good perfume, and put on your best attire, and then go. Verse 4, it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. So keep an eye on it when he lies down. Keep, keep your eyes open when the sun's still up. See where he lays out his blanket uh, and where he's going to uh, make a bed for the night and mark it in your mind so that you know where it is once the sun goes down. Then thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down. And he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. So Ruth fully trusts Naomi. This sounds kind of weird. Is this another one of those weird Israelite rituals that you do? Okay, I'm a stranger here. I don't know. I don't want to ask questions. But I also put total trust in Boaz. Whatever he says to me, I'm supposed to do it? Okay. I am worthy. I'm willing and, and submissive and I will go. Now, this is where things get a little tricky, okay? So bear with me, and let's make some good judgment on this threshing floor. Verse 6, she follows the plan. She went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, this feasting and festival over the, the harvest, right? He went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And now time to, to go according to plan. She, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. Now, here's where it gets tricky, and be careful here. There are those throughout history uh, that have seen in this story some kind of oh, illicit sexual advance or even sexual experience on the part of Ruth and Boaz here. They say that uncovering his feet is a mere euphemism for sexual intercourse. And they'll read things like, oh, well, he ate and drank and his heart was merry. So, yeah, he's drunk and passed out. This is going to be one of those, oh, I mean, she's a Moabitess. And so that's related to Lot and his daughters. Oh, okay. This is how Moabites do things. Oh, and now that it's some kind of sexual act has been consummated, then, I mean, it's supposed to be marriage and then consummation, but I guess we'll have to reverse and pull a shotgun wedding. And so uh, Ruth is forcing Boaz's hand. Be a little more careful on this threshing floor, okay? Uh, judge righteous judgment. Now, are there things that could be interpreted that way? Sure. 
And some scholars have gone down that path and said all the evidence lines up and suggests that. Here's the point I want to make, though, cautiously. Whereas many of the words and phrases in chapter 3 would allow for that interpretation, none of them require that interpretation. And there's a huge difference there. Is it possible that that kind of, th that kind of thing could be happening? I suppose. Then again, this could simply be... <laughs> Not metaphorical, some kind of uncovering his feet, quote-unquote. Maybe she really was just uncovering his feet and removed the blanket. Some Often servants in the ancient Near East would even lie down at the feet of their master to keep their master's feet warm. Uh, or just to show, it's kind of like uh, nailing the ear to the doorpost that I am attaching myself to your household. In this case, I am at your feet. I am at your service. You can do anything you want to me. Isn't that what Naomi had said? Whatever he says, do. Prostrate yourself at his feet. Bow before him, so to speak. And, and whatever he says, be willing to accept. This idea of... Well, let's, let's connect it back to Matthew chapter 1 again. In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus and all these four women leading up to the fifth, who is Mary, I already said that Ruth is a great example of Jesus choosing the, the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the poor. But as we saw with Tamar, as we saw with Rahab, as we'll see later with Bathsheba, there all see, also seem to be some kind of sexuality hinted at in these four other women. But what's Matthew trying to do? Back up Mary to say nothing untoward was done. This looks bad. She's pregnant out of wedlock. But nothing wrong has happened. With that in mind, again, I want to give Ruth chapter 3 the benefit of any of those doubts. And though this looks a little odd, what's she doing kind of snuggling up next to Boaz in the sleeping bag, so to speak? What's she doing uncovering his feet there on the threshing floor and lying down next to him? Well, borrowing from Tamar and Rahab, borrowing from Mary, I would make no false accusations or untoward insinuations towards Ruth here. Let's be careful on this threshing floor. Notice what happens next. Verse 8 and 9. It came to pass at midnight that the man, Boaz, was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid, same servant I've always been. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now, the fear in Boaz's face, this is a mighty man of wealth, but also a mighty man of virtue. And to see a woman unexpectedly as he wakes up in the middle of the night and someone's there and he's like, what just happened? What, has, has anything happened? What, what are you doing? And he's scared for his reputation. We'll see more of that in a moment. He's scared for his own virtue. He, what, what's, what's happening? And she reassures him, I'm just Ruth. I'm just your servant. And then this all-important phrase, 
Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now, our eyes should light up with recognition based on what we've learned already about the play on words in some of the Hebrew we've studied today. Spread thy skirt, the extreme edge of your garment, the hem of your robe, your wing. Ah, you're a near, a near kinsman, a kinsman redeemer. Ah, remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, the key verse we're supposed to remember? This is Ruth choosing the God of Israel under whose wing thou art come to trust. It's amazing how all of this comes together. Ruth, you trust the wing of your Redeemer. So here's Ruth saying to Boaz, you are my Redeemer. Put me under the shelter of your wing. You are my kinsman. Spread your skirt over me. Powerful, powerful imagery here. In verse 10, Boaz says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. There is a relationship here already through Elimelech to Naomi, down to their son, on to, uh, to Ruth. I recognize this. Y'all are kin. Sit down. For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. Oh, Ruth wasn't trying to seduce anyone for self-protection or self-aggrandizement. She wasn't going after young men just so that she could have someone to provide for her. Whether poor or rich. So there were rich younger people. It's not like she's, oh, I'm just trying to seduce Boaz so I can, I can get some money from him. He is a wealthy man after all. No, they were young wealthy men that would have been more closer to me in age. Someone I was... Oh, physically attracted to, perhaps, and then can provide. I'm good. Well, yeah, I'm good. But where does that leave Naomi? Without anyone. And, and that's not what I'm trying to do. In fact, here, it seems that Boaz is recognizing in Ruth's conversation an attempt to live the law of leveret marriage, just like Tamar had done. And that... That way, Naomi has posterity. Wait a minute. That's amazing. See, my husband died with no children. His brother died also with no children. So there's no leveret marriage there. And so what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to marry my father-in-law and raise up seed for my husband. And that way, that line of the house of Israel continues. But my father-in-law is gone also. We're all widows here. Well, then who's next? In the law of leverant marriage, you just keep going until you find a redeemer among your kinsmen. And that would be Boaz. And so what is Ruth doing here? Again, it's selflessness. It's not about me. I'll have a husband. I'll be provided for. Yeah, that'll come. But that's an afterthought. Naomi will have posterity in Israel. Whoa. My husband who died will have a son to call his own, and that family line will, will go on. Indeed, it will go on till Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. See what's happening here? And Boaz gets it all. Boaz, no wonder he calls, him, calls her my daughter. 
No wonder you've shown more kindness now than in the beginning. It's amazing what you're willing to do. Not just to provide food for Naomi, but to provide posterity as well. Man, you're good. You, you know, you understand Israelite culture and law better than I assumed. You better believe she did. Verse 11, now my daughter, there that title is again, fear not. I was afraid that you, you I, I now know I have no reason to fear, neither do you. I will do to thee all that thou requires. I will perform my duty in the law of mar- leverate marriage, just like you have offered to do your duty in the law of leverate marriage. And then this great statement, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Again, you see why I want to cut this story some slack and avoid a possible interpretation that I would consider a misinterpretation. She's a virtuous woman and everyone knows it. Yeah. Uh, In the woman with the issue of blood, she felt virtue go out of Christ through the the furthest feather, through the hem of his, his garment. Boaz didn't need to feel any virtue go out of him as he covered her with the skirt. No, he knew her virtue already. And some of her virtue was flowing into him in beautiful ways. These are both above board. These are virtuous, good, chaste people. Even when King Solomon builds the temple and has two massive pillars to hold it up, he gives them names, and one of them he names Boaz. There's a pillar of strength. There's something to hold up the temple of God. And the house of God will will be supported by him in more ways than one. Here, it's going to, to lead to a birth in Bethlehem, the house of bread, through his own, his own posterity. Verse 12, now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Here's leverate marriage kicking in. How be it, so here's the catch, here's the problem. There is a kinsman nearer than I. So we got to figure this thing out. Yes, I want to play my part. Uh, You're playing yours, but there's somebody closer. I'm not next of kin. I'm next of next of kin. So here's the plan. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning that if he, the closest kinsman, if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, well, let him do the kinsman's part. You'll be provided for at least. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. So again, Boaz is going by the book. Here's someone who is just and righteous and obedient, even to the point of, no, I'm not going to go out of, out of bounds uh, even to do a right thing, let alone a wrong thing. So we've got to go by the book, and I've got to ask this other one if, he, if he's willing to do it. If he doesn't, and I'm your guy, as the Lord liveth, I swear on the existence of my God that I will provide for you. Verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. So before the light of day, before anyone could see what had happened. We're trying to protect reputation here. No people thinking things they shouldn't be thinking. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Again, I don't want false rumors to fly. 
Also, he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city. I love that the symbol of her modesty, the veil, now becomes uh, a means whereby she gains great blessings. I mean, it's happening literally, right? You got anything to hold? Oh, just hold out your veil. Okay, it's dark. Nobody's going to see you anyway, so it's fine. You don't have to cover yourself. Hold it out, and let me just dump as much barley as you can as you can hold, and come back uh, to come back home. Go back to Naomi. So again, providing, 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 protecting, protecting, protecting. He's doing all of these things, but I do love the symbolism there. Your symbol of modesty is also a source of great reward. Verse seven, 16 then, when she came to her mother-in-law, again she said, who art thou, my daughter? And now a better way to say it, whose art thou? Are you Boaz's? How did he react? Did this work? <laughs> Have you found rest? Is it well with thee? Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, these six measures of barley gave he me for he said to me, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. So here's evidence of his intentions to provide not just for me, but to provide for you as well. This kinsman redeemer will live the law of lover at marriage and you will have, oh, you said you didn't have hope for a future in terms of a husband. You can have hope for a future in terms of a child, a son, grandson, grandchild, just... Your future is bright, mom. God is providing. In verse 18, then the chapter ends. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. There's a pretty close equivalent to stand still and see the salvation of God. We have done everything within our power. There was, this is a great contrary to prove as well. To be proactive, but also to be Submissive, to act like it all depends on you, but then to be patient and pray like it all depends on God. And that's exactly what Naomi is doing. At the beginning of the chapter, we got to take matters into our own hands. Go down to the threshing floor. Okay, let's start the process. Initiate at least a conversation. Look like a wife. Smell like a wife. And maybe he'll see you in more wifely terms. Okay, but then the flip side she starts the chapter with proactivity, ends the chapter with total submission. Works at the beginning, faith at the end, and neither one is dead because they both have the other. Verse, chap, chapter 4 then, you see how the, the story comes to its, to its end, and it's a glorious one. Verse 1, then went Boaz up to the gate. There's the place of judgment, okay, the, the palm of Deborah, in this case the gate of the city. And sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. Oh, just so happened. Another coincidence. No, I don't think so. Unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, like just the guy I was looking for. Turn aside, sit down here. And he did. He turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city, I need a jury here, I need judges, and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Gathers his witnesses. He's calling court into session. Verse 3, he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. 
I mean, you're first in line. So if you want this land, it's yours. It's yours for the, the purchase. It's yours for the redemption. Redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, since I'm next in line, that I may know. For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I'm after thee. So you got dibs. I'm second in line. Uh, so if it, you want it, take it. If not, let me know. And I'll do it. Well, verse 4, the man says, sounds great. Land? I'm always for more land. So, yes, I will redeem it. Now, this is looking really bad for Naomi and Ruth. Well, maybe not. They'll have somebody. But what kind of a person? <laughs> Watch what happens next. Then said Boaz, oh, yeah, I forgot. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm here to advertise this land. But there are a few strings attached. Okay, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi... Thou must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. And why do you have to do that? To raise up the name of the dead unto his inheritance. So there's the very clear uh, reference to the law of leveret marriage. You have a duty here. Uh, if you thought land was reward, well, there is also responsibility that goes along with reward. Now, if that doesn't describe family life, I don't know what does. And if that doesn't describe what sexuality should be seen as, then, then we're missing something there too. I think too often when it's, we think of, oh, reward? I'm in it. Oh, responsibility? No thanks. And often when we think of relationships and sexuality as something I can gain without anything I have to give back in terms of raising children that come as a result, no, no, There's, we have to be better than that. And so here's this, do you understand both halves of this, my near kinsman? You'll have to marry Ruth as well. Verse 6, all of a sudden, things have completely changed for this near kinsman. Whoa, the kinsman said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Uh, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. <laughs> Catch it? He backs out as soon as he sees the responsibility side. And yet he seems to suggest, it's, oh, it's just about the land. I, I thought it would work, but oh, it's there, that part of the field? Sorry, it, it wouldn't like fit really well with, with my property over here. So as much as I would love to help, I, I just can't do it. Sorry. Um, but if you're next in line, I, I mean, have at it, brother. And Boaz does. You see the selfishness. Finally, we have somebody that enters in the story from start to finish. The book of Ruth is a story of selflessness. And when selfishness raises its ugly head, this guy fits, along, fits really well in the book of Judges, where everybody does what's right in his own eyes. All of a sudden, it's no longer right in my eyes because I stand to lose something. So no thanks. Go right ahead. And Boaz does. In verse 7 through 10, they perform this version of the shoe ritual we learned back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's a weird one. Remember in that one, if you're the, the, the woman, the widow, and your near kinsman won't perform the, the law of leveret marriage, then what do you get to do? You take his shoe off, you spit in his face. You're basically saying, well, you're going to see what it feels like to have the shoe on the other foot. You go barefoot for a while. You go unprotected and unprovided for. And yeah, spit in the face. And for the rest of time, that person's going to be called the person whose shoe was loosed. Like, oh, you wouldn't even do your duty to your own family. Well, 
this isn't Ruth performing that ritual. There was a softer way of doing it. And that was, I'm going to take my own shoe off and give it to someone else so they can walk a, a, a mile in my shoe. Uh, no spitting in the face necessary this way. And that's exactly what happens in these next few verses. The man takes his shoe off, gives it to Boaz. Here's the sign. Boaz is actually going to do. He's going to go. He's going to walk in the path I should have walked in. He's going to walk in my shoes. In verse 11, all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Okay, this is all done above board according to the law. Everything's fine. Uh, Boaz is not trying to usurp some kind of prerogative that isn't his. He's taking it legally. They say, the Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of fairies whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Now that is an awesome verdict on the, on the part of this jury, this group of 10 judges. These witnesses, yeah, okay, it's all above board, we're good to go. And uh, innocent, uh, we're going to dot the I's and cross the T's, and Ruth is now a wife of Boaz. And then who do they connect her to? Remember she said it, don't make me leave, let me be one of you. Thy people shall be my people, thy God my God. Well, how's this for being adopted into the house of Israel? Ruth, we want you to be just like Leah and Rachel matriarchs. We want you to be just like, when that mentions fairies and Tamar and Judah, well, there's our most famous example of the law of leveret marriage. And, and this is all correct and right. This is happening according to plan. They are drawing Ruth into lofty Israelite company. You're one of us. So verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. Oh, the ultimate blessing for this union. God honored this marriage by allowing it to be fruitful in literal ways. And that's actually interesting because we saw before, after 10 years of marriage in Moab, Ruth still had no children. Was she considered barren? Perhaps her husband was the weak link in the chain? but not to have any children. And now all of a sudden she has a child. What a blessing. Verse 14, the women said unto Naomi, notice they're speaking to her, not to Ruth. That's part of what leveret marriage is all about. They say, blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman. In other words, without a redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. This isn't just Boaz. This is, the, this is her grandson. This is the son of Ruth. He's going to restore your life. He's going to nourish you in your old age. And isn't that what grandchildren do? They make us young again. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Oh, this is, again, not just a daughter-in-law. This is a daughter in love, in life, in very deed. And the son she gives you is your posterity. Uh, every bit as much yours as it is Ruth's, which means he's Israel. 
This is the lion that will come to Jesus. She loves you. She's better than seven sons. We'll see a play on that in 1 Samuel in just a second. But all is well for Naomi. This woman who had been so selfless from the very beginning, all of the blessings are coming back to her. That's how selflessness works. Verse 16 then, Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom, became nurse unto it, and the women her neighbors gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So speaking of grandchildren, Obed is Naomi's grandson. David, King David, is Obed's grandson. We're getting close to some famous stories. Okay? And then the chapter ends with some more genealogy that goes, again, culminates in David, but goes back to Pharaoh, the son of Tamar, this ultimate example of liberate marriage. It's all happening according to plan. By the way, the name Obed comes from the verb meaning to work or to serve, which is exactly what Naomi always did for the people around her, and exactly what Ruth always did in reverse. This is the perfect fruit of that kind of fruitful friendship and fruitful relationship. And all of this during the days when the judges ruled. It's amazing to me. I, I love the book of Ruth. And when I get to teach women in the scriptures classes, this is one of my favorite books to focus on. Because what lessons we can learn, not just about womanhood or motherhood, but about friendship and about discipleship, about goodness, about God. I love this book. And while we're on the subject of righteous women, turn the page and you will see the next incredible mother in Israel, who is Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Great, great segue from one story to the next. It's a story of loss followed by ultimate gain. That's the story of Hannah. Wait, wasn't that the story of Ruth and Naomi? Uh-huh. Yeah, we're, we're following this. This is a story of famine turning to feast, of loss turning to gain through the blessings of God. So let's some, spend some time with Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. Plural marriage was fine in those days. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Oh, great. We're back to another Rachel and Leah situation. And there's a reason for that. We see these echoes of experience throughout Israelite history. And if you think of Rachel and Leah in this situation, there is a wife that is loved, but has no children. And then there's a wife that has children but perhaps doesn't feel very loved. This is setting up the story for possibilities of pride from above and pride from below. We saw that with Rachel and Leah. We saw it with, with Sarah and Hagar. These are common problems because this is, family is where the friction lies because we're so close together. Now, Elkanah, again, we've got our cast of characters. His name means God has acquired or God has redeemed. He's from Mount Ephraim, so an Ephraimite most likely. But then again, 1 Chronicles chapter 6 goes through Samuel's uh, genealogy and it connects him back to the tribe of Levi. So this is a bit confusing. It seems like Elkanah and therefore his son-to-be, Samuel, is an Ephraimite, but Chronicles suggests, no, he's a Levite. And that would be important if he's going to be serving at the tabernacle. That's going to be important as he 
it leads Israel as a prophet of God. Now, is this a discrepancy and are we falling apart with our faith in the Bible? No, remember that Levites did not have a singular land inheritance. Instead, there were Levitical cities scattered throughout all of Israel, so everyone had access to priesthood. There's no problem reconciling these two accounts if we consider Elkanah as a, a Levite. The name even suggests some priesthood things, but that he's a Levite living within the land inheritance of Ephraim, probably in an, uh, a Levitical city. Okay. A few other names to learn. Panina means coral or pearl. This is a precious stone, a precious person. But Hannah means grace or graciousness. And God will give her grace. She will find grace in God's sight, just like Ruth did in the previous book. Now, verse 3. This man, Elkanah, went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. That's the home of the tabernacle. Okay? And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, even before we meet Samuel, Elkanah's son, we meet Hophni and Phinehas, who are Eli's sons. Now, Samuel's going to end up as an adopted son of Eli. He's going to be raised there in the tabernacle, right alongside these kind of pseudo-brothers, these adopted brothers, Hophni and Phinehas. And right here from the very beginning, there's great literary technique throughout the Bible. And this one is great because you see a juxtaposition of, of Eli with Hophni and Phinehas. Juxtaposition just means to put things side by side. And you juxtapose things to bring out the difference. Okay, And so right here in verse 3, from the very beginning, you're seeing these boys put side by side. And literally, it's setting us up to compare them. And, and it's an easy comparison to make. In verse 4 and 5, When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters, which means she's got at least four children already, he gave them portions. So this is part of the sacrifice. You go and you give some of the, the food that you're offering to God to the priests. That's how they eat and subsist. But also, especially if it's a peace offering and just rejoicing and so on, then it's a chance to feast together as a family or with your friends. And so you get that, uh, a large portion of the sacrifice, the major portion, back for yourself. And you share it among your, among your own. And so she, he is giving Panina and that side of the family these wonderful portions of, of the blessing that he's offering. But, the story continues, unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, a worthy portion suggests some kind of addition, some kind of greatness. There does seem to be some preferential, preferential treatment here. He loved her. Again, we're back to Rachel compared to Leah. But then again, this could simply be a husband doing his absolute best to, to help his wife through her sense of inadequacy or her sense of loss. Remember, this is a culture that blames themselves for doing something wrong anything, anytime something right doesn't happen. And so how would, how would Hannah feel about herself? Just like Naomi, why is my name pleasantness when my life has been bitter? Here's Hannah, why is my name grace when God, I have found no grace in the sight of God? Well, at least you're finding grace in the sight of your husband, and he's trying his best to make up for it in any way that he can and give some kind of compensatory blessings 
to comfort her in her loss. In verse 6, her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Now we need to make sense of that word adversary. Her adversary provoked her sore. To make her fret can also be translated irritated her, embarrassed her, made her miserable. Now, there seem to be at least two main possibilities for what adversary might mean. Adversary can be translated as rival, as enemy. And who would fit that bill, probably? Well, Panina probably would. Uh, is Panina rubbing it in, like Leah did with Rachel, like Hagar did with Sarah? Pride from below all of a sudden becomes pride from above because, yeah, the husband might like you best, but evidently God likes me. Anybody can be a wife, but oh, who can be a mother? Now, that would definitely be something that would cause someone to fret and be provoked and, and end up weeping and not eating. And, and it happens year by year. This is, this is PTSD every time you go to the house of the Lord thinking the Lord doesn't love me and hasn't blessed me. And, and tragically, the help ends up causing the hurt, or I should say the source of, of the assistance, the source of grace ends up becoming a trigger instead because of times in life that it felt like God wasn't there for me. Why do I keep going back to this, to the house of a God who seems so absent in my life when he's, he hasn't been there for me when I've needed him? For for this, and then have it rubbed in your face by someone you have to live with. That would be all the worse. Now, I don't know that about Panina. It's very possible, especially, like I said, from the examples we've already seen. But adversary could also be translated as mere adversity or affliction or anguish, distress, tribulation, trouble, it's not personified. It's just what happens to us. And yes, it provokes us sore. Yes, it makes us fret. It brings tears. It causes loss of appetite. This is depression. And this is because of stuff I'm going through that's just hard. And how do I get through it? Now, like I said, if it's Panina, then she has some repenting to do. And if we're the Panina, then we've got some repenting to do. And the last thing we should do is rub it in into someone's face when, oh, well, what did you do wrong? We'll see Job's friends, quote unquote, doing that. Or I have something you don't, neener, neener. No, what robs us of real relationships are the four C's I've mentioned before. To compare, to compete, to complain, to criticize. All of those are possibilities here. But the other side of it is, if it's just adversity that makes us miserable, then we should be very careful not to embody that adversity into someone else. Does that make sense? If it's not personal, if it's not Panina doing this, then don't turn it into an adversary that has pronouns like she be careful. Don't 
don't pile your problems on someone else's account, making them to blame for all of it. Now, sometimes there might be people to blame, but be very hesitant or cautious. Be, be on a threshing floor, judge well, and be careful before you turn it into a person and then assign that person, especially if it's someone close to you. You're the source of all my problems. You're the cause of my adversity. And call it Panina, or call it a spouse, or call it a child, or call it a parent, or a sibling, or a neighbor, or a former friend. We, that's going to cause us to fret and to weep and to lose our appetite, perhaps more than anything. And by forgiving, or by just accepting our suffering, we'll be able to get through it far better than otherwise. In verse 8, then said Elkanah to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? Why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Now I laugh there because Hannah doesn't answer. <laughs> so I think we just got our answer. Elkanah just got his. Remember back at the end of Ruth chapter 4 where they're like, Man, Naomi, Ruth is better than seven sons. Well, here's a husband saying, Aren't I better than ten I'm not going to answer that, okay? Now, I do love Elkanah uh, because I'm a husband that sometimes tries to console or comfort my wife or my children, and I don't often do a very good job of it, and, and they'll vouch for that. Uh, too often, I'm a fixer, and I just want to fix things and make it better. Or I want to find the source of the problem so I can fix that so the problem goes away, okay? I mean, logically, it makes sense to me. Emotionally, it doesn't make sense to my family. Okay, and so poor Elkanah here, he's doing exactly what I do wrong. Because all of his questions are whys. Well, why, what, are you, what are you crying for? Why, are you, why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Seriously, do you not know? Well, of course he knows. So no reason to, to go down that path. And I think some of the problem when there's struggle, when there's anxiety, we ask whys when we shouldn't because we know them. And so rather than asking why, and, and rather than trying to shift, because that's what he does too, quit thinking about what you don't have and just focus on what you do. And you got me and look, I give you worthy portions and what a great husband you have. I mean, it's way better than it could be. I mean, you could be a, a widow like, like Ruth or like Naomi. You see, that's <laughs> brethren, husbands out there. May we learn from Elkanah's example, good and bad. He's trying, that's good. But he's not doing it in a way that will actually be helpful to the person he's trying to help. And that's bad. When we're, like my daughter tells me this often, uh, Dad, I, I didn't want an, an answer, I didn't want a solution. I just wanted you to listen. I just wanted you to be there for me. With my wife, especially early in our marriage, she'd explain something hard. I'm like, oh, well, we can do this and do that. We fix that. It's great. And look at all the good. Let's look at the bright side of things. And I'm a bright side kind of guy. Well, that can be helpful in its time. But don't comfort those that stand in need of comfort until you've mourned with those who mourn. Okay? And my wife has been patient with me and at times said, honey, I, didn't, I don't want an answer. I just want you to feel with me. Just want you to mourn with me. I just want you to be there for me. I've gotten a, li a little better at that over the years, I think. 
Although there have been times where I'm like, uh, okay, honey, is this one of those times you, you just want to be heard or do you want some help? Like, like actual, what I consider help. And then she's like, honey, you're just supposed to know. I'm like, great. I'm dead. I tried it on my, on my second daughter once where she was going through something hard and I just empathized for like a solid day. I mean, the, the, when she got the bad news, the rest of that day, I didn't offer any help. I didn't say, well, here's a solution or let's look at the bright side or, well, why are you so, so sad about this? Nothing. It was just, I'm so sorry you're going through that. That stinks. And I'm here for you and I mourn with you and I'm, I'm just, I'm devastated too. Well, her sorrow lasted a lot longer than I thought that, that I wanted it to or that I thought was, was healthy. And so the next day I'm like, but look at this and we can try this. And that's probably a good thing because then this and this. And, then we're, and she got so mad that as, as I was retreating from her room, I just kind of twinkle in my eye said, um, did you like yesterday's approach better than today's approach? And just kind of starting to smile, but angry, just yes. Like too soon? Yes. Okay, sorry, I'm out, and pretend that today didn't happen. Okay, so Elkanah, not quite the, the, the right approach. Okay, let them feel their emotion, and if it's you, let yourself feel it. Work through it. Come to grips with what you've lost, and, and then hopefully as you metabolize that, you'll be prepared for the next step going from mourning to being comforted. In verse 9, we start to move in this direction. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh. And after they had drunk, so at least Elkanah did convince her to eat and drink something. Okay, that at least stay, stay healthy. You need some strength to be able to get through all the struggle. Keep going. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she, Hannah, was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Talk about a heartfelt prayer. She's not going through the motions. She's not paying lip service to something. This is bitterness of soul. This is weeping sore. I worry sometimes that we have the right language in our prayers, but not the right emotion to give power to that language. Don't just say thanks. Feel gratitude. Don't just say sorry. Feel godly sorrow remorse, contrition, broken heart, contrite spirit. Don't just say, please, feel need, feel your nothingness and rely upon the goodness of God. That's where Hannah is. And in that heartfelt prayer, verse 11, she vowed a vow. So she's entering into a covenant relationship here and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, so start with that. Just see where I am and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. Can you hear Hannah offering this prayer through her tears, through the bitterness of soul? God, I feel forgotten. Where have you been? Here I am at thy house. Is anyone home? Will you please remember me and just look, open your eye and see my, my loss, my loneliness, my nothingness. I, 
I'm your handmaid. She says that, what, three times? I just want to be thy servant. And I have nothing to give you. If you will give me a son, then I'll have something to give back to you. This isn't just about her wanting to have a child to raise. I, I, too often I worry that today having a child is like having a, a pet. And it's so exciting because it's, it's a little dog I can carry in my purse or it's a little baby I can hold in my arm and it looks so cute in my selfies. Oh, it's motherhood and fatherhood are so much more than that. It's, am I self-sacrificing for the life of this child? They're not here for me. I'm here for them. And am I raising them in such a way that they can make a difference in the world? Is, am I asking God to give me something I can give back to Him? Because that's what gifts are for. And she gets it. She understands this. I'll give Him to you all the days of His life. This is not going to be a, a temporal cure for my loneliness. But I'll have something to give. Honestly, it reminds me of when the apostles are about to be called as a, well, the fishermen are about to be called as apostles. And they have nothing in their nets. They've been mending and cleaning them all night. And then the Lord's like, uh, why don't you go try the other side of the boat? And they're like, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, the fish are all hiding on, on that side in the shadow. Okay, fine, I'll try. And they bring a boatload. And then Jesus says, come follow me. Um, I wish you would have asked like an hour ago because I had nothing to leave behind. Following you would have been easy. Easy to leave empty nets. But leaving full ones? We just won the lottery and now you're asking us to leave it all behind? Uh-huh. But don't forget where all the fish came from. You had nothing before. And you'll have nothing after. Well, you'll have me. Then why'd you give us all those fish? to give you something to give back to me. It's like when your child comes and says, hey, it's your birthday, Dad, or happy, or happy Mother's Day. Can I have 10 bucks to buy you something? <laughs> and often they're so innocent, they don't get what they just asked for. Like, will you buy yourself something and give me the credit for it? <laughs> sure. Here's 10 bucks. Here's 20. Get me something good. Uh, there's, I love that the Lord is willing to do that. I will give you fish so you can have fish to leave behind. Here it's even better because it's Hannah's idea. Please, I have nothing to offer, but if you'll give me something, I'll have something to give back to you. And this man-child, this son of promise, this miracle boy, I'll never cut his hair, no razor upon his head. Sound like anyone we just met in the reign of the judges? This is... Samuel is Sam's son 2.0. Oh, not all the physical strength, but finally has the spiritual strength, and we'll see that in his, as his story unfolds. From day one, this will be a miracle boy, a child of promise, and I will keep my promise, just like Samson's mother was doing as she was ready to give birth and wean this boy. Same thing with Hannah here. In verse 12, and it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. He's sitting there on the post and he's watching this woman pray. Her mouth's moving. Now, Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. 
And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. Now, yikes, Eli, you totally jumped to conclusions there. Now, I kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt. If this is still apostate Israel, we're going to see from his own sons there's some major problems here. Uh, is, is this the type of quote-unquote worshiper that's been coming to the tabernacle lately? Someone that's just kind of plastered and stumbles into the courts and, and mumbles things that have no hope of reaching the ears of God? Uh, either way, though, it's a, an assumption on his part. And in this case, it's a false one. But rather than ask, everything okay? Can I help you with something? He jumps to this conclusion and says something thoughtless and something offensive, which begs the question, how's Hannah going to react? When someone has said something thoughtless to you, how do you react? Especially when it comes from a priesthood leader who has misjudged you or, or it's obvious that in that thing, at least, there was no discernment. No real gift of discernment to help you know what you're supposed to be doing in my life. And I feel for priesthood leaders that are held to a standard of infallibility or perfection. Well, Eli falls short of that, as we all do, and he makes a mistake. But Hannah's response, verse 15, humbly, she answered and said, No, my Lord. So no, is she's setting the record straight. But my Lord, she's still honoring his position. And then she explains herself, which I wish Eli had let her do from the start, but at least she's taking advantage of the opportunity to do so now. So no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, have I spoken hitherto? Such beautiful words from this great soul. Hannah explained her situation so Eli could competently judge. Like I said, I wish that Eli had let her do that from the start. But she's proactive. She's taking the opportunity. She's not jumping to conclusions based on his jumped to conclusions. Please let me explain myself. I am thine handmaid. I'm still, I know where I am in relation to all of this. I'm not trying to to usurp authority or get down on you just because you got down on me. She absorbs this offense, metabolizes it, and responds to, to something negative with something far more positive, just explaining where she's coming from. Out of the abundance of my complaint have I spoken. That's real prayer. The way Jesus said it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And that could be good or bad. But are we connecting the heart to the mouth when we pray? She did. And then when she said, I've poured out my soul before the Lord, that sounds like Jesus. When Isaiah says that he poured out his soul unto death. There's none of me left. I'm just making space for God to pour back into me whatever he thinks is best. It's interesting how she responds to all of this, especially in light of what Eli had assumed. Let's do a play on words here. I haven't been pouring wine into me to cope with my problems. I have been pouring out of me my bitterness of soul. 
like I've said, my wife and son working in addiction recovery, we've talked about coping skills. And that's important for addiction. It's important for temptation. It's important for depression, for mental illness, for so many things. How do I cope with stress, with adversity, with loss? And we've talked about the degrees of glory as far as coping skills are concerned. The telestial ones are the ones that leave you worse than where you started. That's drug addiction. That's alcoholism. That's so many other kinds of things that we turn to because it gets us out of our head and out of our situation. But then when we get back to it, it's worse than it was before. And then we need more of that thing. And it just keeps dragging us lower and lower and lower. That's a telestial coping skill. Uh, a terrestrial one is one that pulls us out of the situation. But then we get back kind of on the same level when all is said and done. That's oh, binge watching Netflix and downing a half gallon of ice cream. It was good for a while. It got me out of that, that funk, but now the, the show's over and the ice cream's gone and I'm feeling horrible again. Whereas the celestial coping skills, often it's the law of increasing returns, the way Elder Irene described it. It might not work immediately, but with time it gets better and better and better when it comes to real healing and real hope. And, and pouring your heart out to God, real prayer, real dealing with emotion and working through it, that mindfulness, that therapy is what she's giving, is getting from God here with this conversation through prayer. And that is a celestial coping skill. I love that the, to, to missionaries, they are now given that great pamphlet, Adjusting to Missionary Life. It's a great resource, even if you're not a missionary. It's just adjusting to mortal life is a good way to describe it. And it's filled with celestial coping skills. Because telestial coping skills are definitely off limits to missionaries. But even the usual terrestrial coping skills that they grew up with, those are harder to come by as a missionary too. So what are you left with? With the types of things that really do help give us healing. And that's what Hannah is turning to here. In verse 17, probably a little sheepishly, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. Now notice, she explained, I'm going through a hard thing, and I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. But she hasn't said what it is. So he doesn't know. He's, he does a lot of acting without total knowledge, but this time he seems inspired. He honors her faith not his own knowledge. This is a good woman. I recognize that. I see that you're, you have trust and faith in God and are pouring your heart out to him. And so whatever it is that you're asking for, I'm going to leave you with God. Sorry, I butted in here. I put my foot in my mouth. I'm going to retreat and leave you in the hands of God. And I trust that he will see the same faith and hope and submission, submissiveness that I do. So I'll leave you with him. And she said in verse 18, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Find grace in thy sight. I, my name is Hannah, after all. I pray to live up to that name. But I'll, I'll take you at your word. And that amazes me as well. She only had the promise. Not the fulfillment yet. You see a glimpse of that in 1 Nephi 5 when, when Lehi is trying to comfort Sarai when the boys are gone. And I'm sure he's doing a valiant job of it, maybe even better than Elkanah tried, <laughs> commiserating. He, he does empathize. He does validate. 
I, you called me a visionary man. You're right, honey. I am. Sorry. But it's a good thing. And I'm grateful. And I'm here for you. And uh, Lehi's got some, maybe some work to do too. We all do. All of us husbands. But it doesn't say that Sariah is fully comforted until the boys are back. Lehi tried to comfort her, but she is comforted once the boys are right here. Go figure. I love that Hannah, though, doesn't have to wait until a son is born. The promise is there. And if it came from God, it's as good as gold. And I trust it. And so I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm, my, whether it's fasting for a blessing that she wants or simply I'm so devastated, I have no appetite at all. Depression will do that sometimes. Then I'm good. The blessing has been promised. It might as well already be in my hands. And to me, most ironically of all, the promise came through a priesthood leader that had just proven to Hannah that he was not perfect. Think about that. Uh, I have every reason to doubt your discernment since you assumed I was drunk when I wasn't. But here you are with a little bit more added information. You understand what, where I'm coming from, and information can so often help with inspiration, and I will trust that you received the second once I provided the first. That's humility on her part. There's forgiveness. That's the exact opposite of being offended. I'll take it, metabolize it, and still trust your position, even though I know you don't infallibly live into it. In verse 19, then, they rose up in the morning, early, and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. That's what she prayed for. Remember me. Please don't forget me. And the Lord remembered her. That's the exact phrase that was used about Rachel after all of her years of feeling forgotten as far as motherhood was concerned. Genesis 30, verse 22. And God remembered Rachel. So many beautiful echoed experiences. Verse 20 then. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel can mean name of God, but it also can mean heard of God. God heard me. I asked him and he listened. He honored my humble petition. And this boy is evidence of that. This little Samuel. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. I love that they didn't stop worshiping just because the blessing had come. I think we do that sometimes. I've even wondered, should our level of gratitude match our level of need? In other words, what did I do to ask a blessing and to show God how desperately I needed it? How deeply did I and sincerely did I pray? Did I fast? Did I go to the temple? What did I do to show God how serious I was that I needed this blessing? Because when the blessing comes, then how, what can I do to show God how grateful I am for it? If I sincerely prayed, to say, please, then am I praying just as sincerely to say thank you? If I fasted out of need, do I fast out of gratitude? Those are powerful fasts. If I went to the temple seeking a blessing, do I go back to the temple 
to thank God that he came through and blessed me with what I was asking for. I just think there needs to be, oh, proximity there, or I don't know even the word, just the uniformity. Is it, on, is it on the same level? Is it at the same depth? Now, Hannah, in verse 22, she went not up. It wasn't because she wasn't grateful, though. She said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. I'm not trying to get out of my vow, believe me. I now, especially now that I know full well that God remembers, <laughs> I, he's going to remember what I, what I promised. And so I'm not trying to get out of it. But Samuel's not ready to live on his own. I just gave birth for crying out loud. And he's crying out loud for me to feed him. And so I'm going to keep doing that, honey. You go and offer God everything. Thank him for me. Panina can have my worthy portion. I'm going to stay here and wean Samuel. I'm going to try to get him ready to live without us. Or better yet, try to get him ready to live with the Lord. Now that's weaning for you. Parents out there, what are we doing to raise our children and to feed them on the bread of life and the living water so that we can then wean them off of our testimonies, our faith, and hope, more than cross fingers, turn hearts, hope that they will then live those principles on their own. Are we ready to deliver them to God at the tabernacle? In a way, that's kind of what we do when our children are old enough to be endowed and go on missions and leave us or get married and leave us. Are they ready to go with God? Have I prepared them well? So often we talk only about temple worthiness. And we try to train our children and raise our children to be temple worthy, temple worthy, temple worthy. Well, a, a newborn baby is temple worthy, believe me. They've done nothing wrong. What better time to send them off to the temple than before they're accountable for anything? They're really, really worthy. I worry that we spent too much time talking about temple worthiness and not enough time about temple readiness. Now, not to diminish the need for worthiness at all, but the need to <laughs> augment a person's readiness so that their trip to the tabernacle is actually a positive one rather than one that just confuses them, that they weren't ready for even though they were worthy of. It does make me wonder, what am I doing now before I wean my children off of me? And it does make me want to be a far more intentional parent than sometimes I am. In verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. I think Elkin is getting there. I mean, he's still worried about God. He's doing what's right. He goes to the, the yearly sacrifice every time, right? And he, so he wants to make sure. Now, honey, let the Lord establish his word. He did. He gave you the gift. Make sure that you honor the gift and give it back to God. Oh, duh, I'm going to. There's no need to worry about that, honey. But I do love what he said at the beginning. Do what seemeth thee good. He knew that the covenant needed to be kept, but he also honored his wife, and allowed for flexibility. This is diversity within unity, right? Uh, this is live on the east side of the Jordan as long as you conquer the west side with the rest of us. Go ahead and keep your covenants and live the law as seemeth you good. I'm going to trust you on this. In verse 24, 
When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. This is an incredible sacrifice. Three bullocks, an ephah of flour, that's ten days worth, right? A bottle of wine, no, I wasn't drinking it at home either. I brought it here for the priests. But more than anything, what was her greatest sacrifice? More than the bullocks and the flour and the wine, she took him up with her. I'm ready to offer him to God. And he's not just worthy of it, he's ready for it. I've seen to that. She then says to Eli, now that she's back with him, it's been a while, okay? Verse 26, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Now the fact she had to reintroduce herself. There's a lot of people in the tribes of Israel. They all come to the tabernacle for offerings and worship and so on. And so imagine the number of people that Eli has seen over the years. And it's been a while since she's come and she reintroduces, I'm the one that was here. Remember you said, I do remember that part, please don't remind me. Uh, But let me tell you what you didn't know. When I was mouthing what was going on in my heart, I prayed for a son and God heard me. Here's Samuel as evidence of that. And since God gave him to me, I am giving him to God this Nazarite vow. For the rest of his life, he will be dedicated, set apart to God. And so I'm passing the baton. I've raised him the best I can. I've weaned him off of myself, and he is now ready and worthy to serve. If you will take him. By the way, the whole idea of reintroducing makes me wonder... Did it ever cross Hannah's mind? It crossed mine. Is he even going to remember me or recognize me? He doesn't know what I, does he know me? Does he know what I asked for? No. So does he know what I promised? No. So can he hold me accountable? No. I could totally get away with this. And I mean, I made the promise when I was in total need. And, but now that I have the blessing, I don't feel that same need and thus don't feel the same... Oh, sense of, of accountability toward what I said. Are we ever guilty of that? We make promises in our desperation, but then when things calm down, we're like, ah, I think I'm good. I mean, that was Pharaoh's problem, right? Desperate. I'll let your people go. The plague's over? Ah, forget what I said. Well, Hannah doesn't go there. She doesn't want God to forget. She brings it up herself to Eli. Verse 28, she then says, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So Samuel had indeed been prepared well. He was raised by a mother who came yearly to worship. And now he was ready to stay and worship himself. She didn't try to water down any promises that she made. Didn't try to come up with excuses to not keep her covenant. No, I'm... This Again, this is the mother of Samson. Doing everything God had asked and hoping that her son would follow suit. Samson didn't. Samuel did. And in fact, notice her word there. Earlier it was, I will give him to God. Well, she changes the verb. And in 28, it's, well, I'm going to loan him. 
Okay, he shall, I have lent him to the Lord. He shall be lent to the Lord. Now, the thing about a loan, and I love the word here. I think she's wiser than she even realizes. The thing about a loan is that, A, it's for a, a certain period of time. And B, you get back whatever it was you loaned. In fact, best case scenario, you, you get it back with interest. Now, how's that for lending your child to the Lord? Now, in her case, what was the time commitment? She said it, as long as he liveth. She had actually said the similar things earlier on in the chapter. Until he die. As long as, from this point forward. Well, wait a minute. If he's going to be loaned until he's dead, then you don't get him back. Huh. Or do you? To me, I see just this subtle hint about the eternal family. Oh, he's mine and will forever be mine. So take him as long as he lives. But as soon as death comes, I want him back. The loan is over. And yes, God returns that loan with an incredible rate of return. The return on investment when you give something to God or someone to God is incredible. It's eternal. It's infinite. I think that of that when parents send their children off to missions. It's amazing to me to watch my son grow up in God on this mission. And to see the kind of man he's becoming. Oh, that, there's an interest rate. And I'm happy to loan him or any of my children to the Lord. Knowing that I'll get them back better than I ever weaned them myself. And that's what's happening here. Hannah knows it. Hannah feels it. And Hannah, who always had a, did a good job of bringing emotion from the heart up to the mouth, does it again in chapter 2, where we see in the first 10 verses the song of Hannah. Now, to this we could compare the song of Miriam after they crossed the Red Sea. We could compare the song of Deborah after the defeat of Sisera and his army. We can actually compare it to, best of all, to the song of Mary. It's called the Magnificat. Uh, from Luke chapter 1, where Mary is rejoicing over the fact that God would condescend to recognize in her a mere handmaid, someone that could be trusted with the Son of God, the ultimate Nazarite. Well, Hannah and Mary have some things to compare notes about when they come together in the spirit world. In verse 1, here's her song beginning. And Hannah prayed... Well, I thought it, you said it was the song, not the prayer. Well, same thing. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. Well, here's Hannah's prayer, her song. She said, my heart, and that's where it has to erupt from, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn, that's my strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. That's a far cry from the bitterness of soul that she was pouring her heart out because of. No, now she's pouring out praise because she's rejoicing in salvation. God has saved her by giving her this son. Notice it was her heart, her horn, her mouth. And again, heart is, or horn is strength. Sound like praising God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. She is. She goes on in two, there is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. This is a rock she had been clinging to through her entire life. No matter how hopeless it felt at times, she held on to it. 
And it's the only rock worth holding on to. Broad as eternity, Enoch described it as. Hitting rock bottom, he's still there beneath you, bearing you up. And for her to recognize that, there's no one else. Makes you realize it should be easy to have no other gods before God. Because there are no other gods besides him. No others like him. Verse 3, talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, is that a nod to Penina's pride that had made life so difficult for Hannah? Don't talk it proudly. Don't let arrogancy come out of your mouth. Very possible. Then again, if it was adversity rather than adversary, and perhaps it was pride on Hannah's part of why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. That's actually pride speaking in a weird sort of way. So may Panina get over it. May Hannah get over it. May we all get over that universal sin. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. There's lowering the lofty. And they that stumbled are girded with strength. There's lifting the lowly. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. And they that were hungry ceased so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Every example, there's a pair in those verses. There's the mighty versus those that have stumbled. There's the full versus the hungry. There's the barren versus those with many children. And every example, every pair gets reversed. Again, poetry and song deals with a lot of repetition. That's what rhyming is all about. We'll learn more about Hebrew poetry when we get to the book of Isaiah. But you're hearing these, this song roll forth, and it's this echoed, not this, but that. High to low, low to high, first shall be last, last shall be first. Bring down the, lo the lofty, bring up the lowly. Every mountain shall be brought low, every valley shall be exalted. Speaking of Isaiah's songs. We're seeing, Mary says the same kinds of stuff in the Magnificat, and it's magnificent the way she does it. Hannah, feeling so lowly, is now feeling so exalted because of the blessings of God. In verse 6 and 7, more role reversals. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. You see Hannah leaving all judgment to the Lord trusting his omniscience as well as his omnipotence. Whatever situation you find yourself in, and she found herself in a tough one, she had come to trust God for placing her there and then changing her place later on. In verse 8, God raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. Can you sense how Hannah feels and felt about herself? She felt like a beggar in the dunghill, just wishing that some crumb could fall from the master's table to give her hope. But now how did she feel? I've been set among the princes. I am a princess myself. There's Sarah going from, from no child to a true princess in Israel, mother of the covenant itself. Hannah feeling the same thing. The throne of glory is part of her inheritance. In verse 9, God will keep the feet of his saints. 
He'll keep them from sliding. There's a verse in Deuteronomy about that. The wicked shall be silent in darkness. There's ultimate justice in the Lord's due time. For by strength shall no man prevail. It's the arm of God, not the arm of flesh that counts. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Oh, you see how her song ended there? Talk about ending on a high note, a crescendo. Going from poor to princes, but from princes to kings. Thrones of glory, after all, and God giving strength to his king, exalting the horn of his anointed. An anointed one in Hebrew, that's Messiah. An anointed one in Greek, that's a Christ. And these, this song is pointing to him. Not just the king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. After the song is over, we get back to the story, and it, it becomes, again, a matter of juxtaposing right and wrong. The song did that a ton, high and low, rich and poor, right? Hungry and full. Now we're going to see good and evil. Samuel versus Hophni and Phinehas, the adopted spiritual son of Eli versus the biological sons of Eli. And that story is next to unfold. Verse 11, Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Here's the juxtaposition. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Hannah had come to know God intimately and made sure her son did too. That was before, he, before she weaned him. Eli, on the other hand, we don't know what kind of a parent he had been. We'll see what kind of a parent he is now. But putting side by side, oh, I'll take an Eli young as he is, over a Hophni and Phinehas any day. They don't know God, and yet they're priests that are supposed to be introducing God to his people and his people to God. Starting in 13, then, we see what the sons of Eli were doing that was so wrong. The priest's custom with the people was, and then he explains it. Now, it's just a custom. It sounds like a wicked tradition has developed. And what it consists of, it describes in from 13 to 16, was taking more of the sacrificial meat or meal than was intended for them. Remember, they have no tribal inheritance, but priesthood. And so part of the way they subsisted was making sacrifices. People of, the, of Israel would come, offer sacrifice, and a certain portion would be allotted for the priests and their families. But what had begun... Uh, in, a, in a good way, had devolved into something negative. Sound like the pride cycle? And the priest's custom was, I mean, I know this isn't law, this isn't the commandments of God, but this is how we do things, okay? And we're in charge of the tabernacle, so deal with it. Offer your sacrifice, and we're going to take whatever part of the meat we want. And who are you to get in our way? In verse 16, if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth. Then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. You see, the fat was something that, oh, it's tasty. It adds some flavor, but that was something that was laid out clearly in the law of Moses. That gets consumed in the fire. The feast of fat things belongs to God. 
It's his, it's his to take, it's his to give. And yet, well, it's become our custom. Well, what's God going to do with the fat? Just burn it and send it up in smoke? No. And so literally what these priests are doing is skimming some of the fat off the top. They're keeping some of that for themselves. I mean, you don't get a better example of priest craft than this because it's, it's becoming their craft. It's become their custom. And it's all about selfishness. Compare that to the selflessness of Ruth and Naomi, that whole story. And, and who are you to get in my way? I mean, the fact that the people understand the law better than the priests are enacting it, when they're saying, be sure to, to give all the fat to God, right? I remember reading that in the Law of Moses. Forget you. And if you won't give it, then I'll take it. Ooh, now it's even worse than priestcraft. Remember Nehor, Alma chapter 1, that it was priestcraft enforced by the sword, and that's what made it so diabolical? Same thing happening here. This is priestcraft enforced by threats of violence. We'll keep reading. Verse 17, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel, here's the juxtaposition, ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. Even, you know, cute little priestly robes shrunk to fit. Put the two side by side. You have Samuel doing what he should, ministering before the Lord, such that later people will want to follow him to the Lord. On the other hand, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the sin was very great. Why? Because you're turning people away from God when you've been called to bring them to him. This is Alma talking to Corianton in Alma 39 saying, what are you doing, son? I'm here preaching the gospel, trying to bring people to God. But your behavior, your immorality is driving people away from them and from him, from me. And we can't afford that. They can't afford that. This is great wickedness. Now, verse 19, back on the Samuel side, because the Hophni Phinehas side is about to get even worse. But here it's getting even better for Samuel. Verse 19, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Oh, here's a mother's continual care. And where is it happening? At the tabernacle. When is it happening? Every time she comes up to worship. You want to really connect with your kids? Connect over spiritual things. You really want to watch your children grow up in God? Then do it at the house of God or in the presence of God as often as you can. I love the thought of this. I wonder how much he's grown over the past year. Let me add a few more inches to his coat and sewing it with love, bringing it in, in faith and offering it in kindness. Such a beautiful continuation of the relationship between Hannah and Samuel. And then 20 and 21. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. In other words, I know what you've offered God, and it's a loan that's going to last his entire life. And so may the Lord begin to give you your interest in advance. You offered a son. May God offer you more sons and daughters of your own. And he does. They went unto their own home, and the Lord visited Hannah. Remember, every blessing is a visit from God. So that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. I imagine Hannah was equally grateful for all of the blessings just listed. 
I have sons and daughters to actually raise now. Ones I get to keep after having offered my firstborn. That's how it was supposed to work from the beginning, right? The firstborn was redeemed, Passover. That way you can keep the other blessings that God has given you. Well, in this case, what a blessing. I get to raise children, but also what a blessing that Samuel is actually growing before the Lord. May that blessing be applied to my other children as well. Now, verse 22, let's get back to the other side of the juxtaposition. Now, Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So if you thought priestcraft was bad, and then elevate it to priestcraft enforced by threats of violence was bad, then how about a grosser sin yet, which is now turning the tabernacle into a den of iniquity? Sound like Jesus ready to turn the tables and cleanse the place. They, they're in surrounding areas, Baal and Asherah. There, there was a, a, a tradition, a custom, let's just call it that, of, of ritual immorality. After all, if we're trying to convince the weather god to provide for the earth so it can be fruitful, then what better way to act it out than to be fruitful ourselves? Huh? It's horrible. It's disgusting. And these priests, sons of Eli. Eli means my god. But his sons were not claiming his god as their own. And everything was just about self, self, self. Doing what was right in their own eyes. They would have fit in perfectly in the reign of the judges. Well... No wonder the reign of the judges is about to shift to the, a reign of righteousness under a prophet named Samuel. Now, Eli heard about this. He knows about it. That's going to be important to remember. Now, these boys, they knew what they were doing was wrong too. But hey, we're priests. And since we're offering sacrifice, <laughs> well, let's offer it for our own Talk about presuming upon God's grace. Talk about cheap salvation here. In some ways, it reminds me of DNC 121, verse 37, that warns when we undertake to cover our sins, like they did, or to gratify our pride, like they did, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness. And, the, and Hophni and Phinehas were guilty of all kinds of degrees of unrighteousness. Every phrase so far has applied to them damningly. And what happens? Behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. The Spirit of the Lord is grieved. And when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. Hophni and Phinehas had none. They had no priesthood authority because they had lost all priesthood power which is only handled and controlled under principles of righteousness. Now, speaking of a loss of power, Eli felt that loss of power himself. I'm old. Yes, I've heard what they're doing, and it horrifies me. But I am powerless to stop it. Well, are you, Eli? We'll see. Does he just shift then and put eggs in a different basket and say, well, those, ch those children were a loss. I'm going to try harder with Samuel, and do better by him. Uh, we can't afford to just give up on some kids and put our eggs in a different basket. We, we have to love and hold out hope for all. We have to keep teaching and hoping and praying and fasting and crying repentance whenever possible. 
we can't give up. And I worry that Eli has started to do so. Now, in verse 23, he, he tries here. He says unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. So the people know better. And they're complaining to me about it. You have to know better too. You have to do better, be better. He says, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. And that's the danger of people in places of authority, wielding power in wrong ways. It ends up spreading their wickedness to other people and the sin will be upon their heads. It would be upon Hophni and Phinehas. To a degree, how much of it should fall upon Eli? He tried there, and I'm grateful for that. Verse 25 and 26, it was unsuccessful though. It says, Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And then juxtapose it. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Sound a little like the young Jesus growing up in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Samuel is our type of Christ in this story. Verse 27 through 36, then all the rest of the chapter. You see a man of God coming to Eli. Which, wait a minute, I thought Eli was the priest here. and We got some names, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. And like, this guy, I don't even know who he is. Which should let us know that holiness is not confined just to priesthood office. We saw an incredibly valiant, righteous Moabitess in the last book. And here, I don't know if he's a Levite or not. I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. But I know he's holy. And so I'll trust him. Uh, without needing to have him show me all of his credentials or lack thereof. He comes and rebukes Eli. He calls attention to the sacred past of the house of Aaron and lets him know, your family is not living up to this, Eli. He compares that sacred past to a very dishonorable present and then prophesies of an incredibly bleak future. And then says in verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Ah, so there we see a little bit more clearly into, into what Eli's doing wrong. Somehow, yes, he's telling his sons, what you're doing is wrong, and they won't listen. I would see God, I tried, but they just won't listen to me. Oh, this man of God comes and clarifies some things and says, but you're still honoring your sons above me. Do something more drastic. Remove them. The whole house of Israel knows that what they're doing is wrong. And so get them on your side and drive them out. Put them on the ultimate parental timeout. You, you cannot do what you're doing. And unfortunately, he honored them more than honored God. Or maybe even that line where it says to make yourselves plural, fat with all these offerings. Was he getting a little skimming off of the fat too? I mean, I didn't do it. I didn't take it. That was the custom my sons had fallen into. But is there some plausible deniability on Eli's part that I can wash my hands and go, I didn't actually do any of it. But if a little comes my way, then well, not the end of the world. I don't know. But this man of God knows there's some things that are going wrong. You worry if Eli is keeping the second great commandment at the expense of the first. 
I don't want to ruffle feathers or rock the boat or offend my son's feelings. Well, you're offending your father's feelings instead. And that's not better. First great commandment happens. It's not just chronological. It's priority. First comes before second. Well, by the end of this holy man's set of prophecies, he says this in verse 30. They prophesies the rejection of Eli's house by God. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You do reap what you sow. It's the law of the harvest. Or 32, thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation. Wait, what? A loss of the tabernacle? Well, yeah. How can you keep God's house when you can't keep your own? Or you've let your sons go into my house at the expense of my presence being there. Only one of us should feel welcome, righteousness or wickedness. And you let wickedness feel welcome there. So I can't. Then verse 34, even more specifically. This shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Your branches you've let grow wild, and they will be broken off. Then 35, and the good news. And I will raise me up a faithful priest to replace the unfaithful ones that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind instead of following after their own ways. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Now, yes, that applies to Samuel on a lesser scale. But again, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. You want to talk about a sure house. You want to talk about mine anointed. That's Jesus. Chapter 2 then shifts to chapter 3, where you see that, that prophecy begin to be fulfilled in the immediate term as God raises up a faithful priest. In this case, the boy Samuel. Verse 1, the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. So there's another juxtaposition. The demise of Eli's house at the end of 2, and now the rise of Samuel at the beginning of 3. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Now, keep 1 and 2 together and you see this loss of vision in more ways than one. The word of the Lord was precious. Oh yeah, well that's just supply and demand. And when supply is low, then demand is high and prices skyrocket. Well, the worth of the word was sky high because the sky never seemed so high and so distant from down here on mortal earth. God didn't seem to be speaking to anyone anymore. And who did he have to talk to? Certainly not Hophni and Phinehas. They wouldn't listen to Eli. definitely wouldn't listen to God. And not even to Eli. Eli was a seer who had lost his spiritual sight, blinded by the pride of his own posterity. So with that as backdrop, look at verse 3 and 4. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, but the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. So God and Samuel are beginning to create this relationship here. Yeah, we just saw God will raise up a faithful priest while he's raising up this little boy from bed. Now there's something else here. Literally, it says, ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. 
So it's bedtime, lights out. Are you tucked in, Samuel? Because I'm about to (laughs) close down shop for the night. But symbolically, even better. Right before the lamp went out in the temple. Time of famine in the land. Times when even a seer is losing spiritual sight. Times when the word of God is scarce. But just before the light fades in total apostasy, God reignites the flame by calling a young boy and giving him counsel. Sound familiar? This is true of every dispensation head. It happens just before the light seems to be going out completely. Now in Samuel's case, here am I. Great words. Isaiah will say them when he's called. The Lord said them in premortality. Here am I. Verse 5, he thought though, (laughs) he got his, his voices a little mixed up. He thought it was Eli. So Samuel runs to Eli and says to him, here am I. There it is again. For thou callest me. And he said, I called not. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Now, Samuel was a little bit off there. You can understand. But Eli was a bit off too. And Eli missed this boy's spiritual experience. He's going to miss it again the second time. It's not until the third that he finally gets it. But I worry sometimes that we as parents, as we're trying to raise our children, help them grow up in God, help them wean them off ourselves, do we recognize the spiritual experiences they are having even when they can't recognize them themselves? We should have a little bit clearer eyesight than they. They're young. And there are times where we can point out to them, did you recognize that that came as an answer to your prayer? And what you were asking for God came through for you. That that feeling we have as we're studying Scripture together or the experience that we just shared as a family, do you know what that feeling is? It's not enough to help them feel the Spirit. Help them recognize what they're feeling so they know that God really is present in their lives. I, I worry that as parents, we're too often like Eli And maybe we're tired and we just want to go back to bed. And we want our kids just to go back to bed. Often our children seem to be in the mood for spiritual experiences at the most inconvenient of times, don't you think? And why can't you have spiritual experiences when I've planned for you to have one? Right here in family night or family scripture study. No, so often it's the unplanned ones and the inconvenient times where we have to realize wait a minute, I think God is trying to reach my child, then I should probably help with the introduction. Well, finally, the third time it happens. But before then, verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. So no wonder he's going to need a little help. God is trying to initiate the conversation. Eli, a little help in helping Samuel know what's going on. Like I said, finally he gets it on the third time. And in verse 8, Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. He couldn't see well, but at least he can still perceive. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. This to me is a golden moment for Eli. And I'm grateful that 
There doesn't seem to be any sense of jealousy or bitterness on his part. Well, wait a minute. God's talking to you. Why isn't he talking to me? Well, he probably knew. But to be just grateful that God is talking to someone and that he hasn't completely given up hope on all of us, even though I haven't done what I should have done. So by all means, Samuel, keep the conversation going. And if God calls you again, I don't know if he will. I hope I haven't blown it. But if he does, let, let him know how willing you are to hear and hearken better than my sons did, better than I have done. And sure enough, verse 10, the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. How's that for a personal visitation? Coming, standing, calling, knowing this boy by name. And Samuel answered, just as Eli had prepared him to do. Speak, for thy servant heareth. Now, this only works in English. Sorry. But there is, what do they call it? A, a homo, homophone? Homonym? I can't, I can't remember. Been too long since I had high school English. Two words that sound the same. Whatever that is. Okay? And in English, it was his first words, Here am I, spoken to Eli. But this one, thy servant heareth. And I love the thought of recognizing the difference between physical and spiritual presence and knowing that it's not enough to be here, H-E-R-E, -E, when instead God is asking us to hear, H-E-A-R. Oh, showing up to church is a good thing. It's better to fully have ears open to the voice of God. Being here in the scriptures is wonderful, but are we hearing the messages God is giving? Being here at the temple, wonderful, but going through the temple is one thing. Having the temple go through us is another, Elder Bednar has said. So speak, Lord. Let's engage in conversation. I've seen the burning bush. I'm turning aside to really see it and to receive its message. And verse 11, the Lord says to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. How's that for a marvelous work and a wonder? Specifically, he promises to cut off Eli's house, which is exactly what that holy man had said to Eli at the end of the last chapter. In verse 13, and he gives the reason why. For I have told him, so he knows better, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Eli knew what they were doing, and he didn't stop them. Remember Boaz saying to his servants, don't rebuke Ruth for what she's doing. She's doing, she's trying to do things right. Well, Hophni and Phineas were trying to do things wrong and horribly succeeding at it. And no, don't. You need to rebuke them. You need to restrain them. But he didn't. Now, how's that for your first message from the Lord? Little boy and the, the man of God that's trying to raise you in the house of God, you just got a message meant for him more than meant for you. And I'm supposed to be the deliverer of bad tidings? Uh, maybe I'll just go back to sleep and hope that Eli forgot about what happened last night. 
Well, he didn't. Verse 15, Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He's ready to go to work and let people come and worship like usual. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. And can you blame him? A young boy delivering to his spiritual leader a message of condemnation from God? Ah, yikes. That also helps you see Samuel is, about, is going to be a prophet, seer, and revelator. He receives the prophecy. He's seeing what the future will hold for Eli. Ah, but do I have to reveal it? I wonder if that's the hardest one for prophets. It's one thing to know and to see, but do I really have to warn people because they don't like that? That's going to offend some sensibilities. Hard sayings, who can hear them? Well, Samuel, little boy, feared to, make, to share the message, to reveal it, but he was expected to. And Eli did want to know. So Eli asks him to share it. Verse 18, And Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. He didn't sugarcoat a word, even though this was bad news. And he, Eli, said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. I now have two witnesses. A holy man then came and told me point blank, and now God who has spoken to this holy boy and delivered the message to me, even though he doesn't, he couldn't possibly know all that's going wrong in Israel. Well, he's going to know as time goes on, because verse 19, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. You ever play that, this game when you were a kid, or, or had your kids or grandkids play it, where you put, blow up a balloon, and then you, the goal is to just keep hitting it, and it's not allowed to touch the ground? The ground is the lava, it'll make it pop, whatever. Well, that's a pretty good, just write the word, word of God on it, and there's the game. It's not a game here. God is sending words down. Will we ignore it and then just let it fall to the ground unfulfilled? Or are we looking up and moving as, as, as eagerly as that room full of little children to make sure that nothing God says goes wasted? We have to catch every word. And Samuel was the type to do so. In verse 20, And all Israel, from Dan, northern edge, even to Beersheba, southern edge, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet, more than a judge, more than a priest, a prophet of the Lord. Finally, and the people know it. They knew that what Hophni and Phinehas were doing was wrong, and now they know God has shifted to this boy Samuel, and that's, that's a priest that we can put our trust in. No priest craft. There's a prophet we can follow. No false prophecy there. God can reveal himself, and he does, through Samuel. Verse 21 gives us that. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. We said that every blessing of God is a visitation from him. Well, here, similar. Every word of the Lord is his own self-revelation. We saw that in DNC 18 last year. That if you read God's word by God's power through God's spirit, then you can testify you've heard his voice and know that he is. Samuel could do that. Now, what a great place to end the lesson for this week. And that's where the story ends in Come Follow Me. But next week we start with 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is an awesome place to begin. I'm excited for next week. But what happens in 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, 7 
Well, I'll try to be faster here, but at least let me do a little justice to these stories because I think they're really important too. In chapter 4, it's a story about another enemy of Israel, this time the Philistines. That's where we left things off with Samson in the reign of the judges. But it also has to do with the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposed to be there in the tabernacle in Shiloh, the holiest place of God. Unfortunately, with the doings of guys like Hophni and Phinehas, they'd driven God out of his house a long time ago. And so who's really guarding the house? No one. And sure enough, in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, Israel is fighting against the Philistines. They lose, and they wonder why. Uh, and they're like, God's supposed to be on our team, so God's got to be part of the battle. Well, how do we make sure that happens? Oh, well, let's just bring him. He, we've, what are we thinking? Leaving him stuck in that tent back in Shiloh. No, let's get God and drag him out to the battlefield. And for them, God was nothing more than the Ark of the Covenant. This is kind of like the golden calf where it's, you mistake the, the real capital S source for the lowercase s symbol. And in their case, it was thinking that if we have the ark, then we have God. They say in verse 3, Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. This is like... I don't know, charging into a den of iniquity, wielding your CTR ring before you, saying, it will protect me. No, it's just a reminder of the covenants that actually will protect you. It's not the ark. It's the covenant that matters. And an ark without a covenant is just a box. And who cares what's in it or isn't in it? Because God's not there. That's a tough one for them to learn. They didn't understand it. So they bring the ark out to the battlefield. And once they see it, the whole army just shouts with self-confidence and self-assurance. God's with us. How can we lose? Well, that shouting leads to some other feelings. The emotion on Israel's side leads to some other emotion on the Philistine side. And they're scared to death. Uh, they say, oh no, what's going to happen? In verse 7, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. Their God that's beaten us year after year. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So the Philistines basically are no different from the Israelites. They mistook the outward symbol for the inner reality that was no longer present. But... They get all pumped up. They're now the underdogs. And so we got to have a good pump-up speech and rally the troops, which they do. And they win. They defeat the Israelites. The Israelites are shocked and dismayed because they're like, wait a minute. We knew we, we, I understand why we lost when God wasn't with us, but God was here. No, it was just a box. And now the Philistines are, we not, we'll not only beat Israel, we beat Israel's God. We're better than the Egyptians were. Man. What should we take home as a trophy? I know the perfect thing. Let's bring their God home. <laughs> and we'll put him in the temple of our God as kind of, I don't know, servant before Dagon. Remember they brought in Samson to be mocked and ridiculed, bind and blind in the temple of Dagon? Well, now, better than Samson, we get the God of Israel himself. And we can bind him and blind him and mock him too. And so they do. But that's not all that happens. In verse 11, the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. 
Now, just as prophesied. But how's Eli going to take that news? Both halves of it. Which is going to be worse for him? Verse 13. Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside, watching, despite his near blind eyes, for his heart trembled. Why? Because his sons are out there leading the way? No, it says his heart trembled for the ark of God. That's his real worry. A messenger comes running to him from the battlefield and tells him all the devastating news. This is verse 17. Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. Now there's national devastation. Thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are, are dead. There's family devastation. And the ark of God is taken. There's spiritual devastation. Now is this crescendo or decrescendo on the part of this messenger? The worst news we lost. Now the worst news for you, your sons are gone. Oh yeah, and the ark's gone too. Now, Eli realizes this is crescendo of, neg of bad tidings. And the worst thing we lost, well, again, symbolism here. If we just lost a box, no big deal. But now this is indicative of what you've really lost. What you lost a long time ago, you lost the presence of God. In verse 18, it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that was the worst news of all, that Eli fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate. He just like fainted, fell off the back of the, of the, of the stool and his neck brake and he died for he was an old man and heavy. So now we see what was the most devastating news of all. And the loss of God years before now made brutally on, uh, obvious in the loss of the ark the loss of his sons, and now the loss of his own life. The house of Eli has indeed come toppling down. And that's not even the end of it. In verse 19, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, first and foremost, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. Talk about early onset child delivery, just the stress and trauma of all of this, and it puts her into labor. Verse 20, about the time of her death, it doesn't even describe what happened to her. It just says at the time of her death, so there's an afterthought. She dies in childbirth, but they don't even mention it. At the time of her death, the woman, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. So there's no joy over this new beginning. There's only despair over this ultimate end. But she did have time to do one last act. She named the child. But she named it Ichabod and said, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. But those personal losses seem to be a mere afterthought compared to the loss of the presence of God. She said it again. The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. And those seem to be this woman's last words. Ichabod is a devastating name. Kabod would be wonderful. Kabod comes from the word for glory. But Ichabod means no glory. The glory is departed. She said it twice. We've lost it. We've lost everything. 
And if we've lost God, then what's the value of having this son, this son with no glory to grow into? This is a devastating, a devastating chapter. It's actually interesting that word for glory is the same word earlier when it said that Eli fell off and broke his neck because he was old and heavy. The word for heavy and the word for glory is the same. And I wonder if there's, a, again, a literary play on words there too. To think what weighed more heavy on Eli's mind? The glory of God or oh, just wanting to keep the peace with these rebellious sons? It's interesting that the glory of God was too heavy for Eli and his boys. And so it crushed them under its weight. They couldn't bear up under it. And so it ended up crushing them. And like I said, thus ended the, the house of Eli. Now, pan, let the camera pan for a moment away from Israel towards Philistia. Because the Philistines are going home with the opposite emotions. All of the devastation of Israel in chapter 4 is followed by the exultation of the Philistines in chapter 5. But it's short-lived. It's a weird story. Uh, let's go through it quickly. The triumphant Philistines take the ark home as a trophy, like I said earlier. They're going to set it in the house of Dagon, their god. This is a different one. Remember the one that Samson brought down? Uh, that's gone, but there's, there's houses of Dagon in every Philistine city. In verse 3 of chapter 5, when they of Ashdod arose early on the morning, so it's like we put, we installed the trophy there in the trophy case, but the next day when we come to go gloat, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. The temple was closed up. Nobody came in. What happened here? We brought the ark of God in to kind of bow at the feet of Dagon, but the roles have reversed. And what's Dagon doing flat on his face? It looks like he's bowing before the God, the God of Israel. He can't have that happen. Sound a little like the God of Israel besting all of the Egyptian pantheon in the ten plagues? Sound a little like Aaron's serpent swallowing up the serpents of, the, of Pharaoh's magicians? Well, there's some interesting ironies ha happening here. Well, verse 4, they set Dagon back up. But the next morning, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. It happened again, but even worse. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. That's weird. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Now, speaking of good metaphors... It's one thing to bow before the God of Israel. It's another thing to lose your head and lose your hands over this. So what are the Philistines left with? A God with no head. He can't think. He can't speak. He can't see. He can't reveal. He can't... Oh, and then no hands? He can't do anything for you. He can't even lift himself up again. God has some fun, I think, with... Uh, poking fun at the false gods of the pagan nations around, around him. The, this is what Gideon's father talking smack to the people that were so angry that, the, that Baal was, was being mocked. And he says, then let Baal stand up for himself. Dagon can't stand up at all. Okay. In verse 6, then, this is where it gets weird. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod. 
and he destroyed them and smote them with emerods, even Ashdod and the coasts thereof. Now he smote them with emerods? What on the earth is that? Now back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when it's describing like the, the plagues that will come if you're not faithful to God, here's the warning. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt. Don't know what that is either, but it sounds, sounds bad. And with the emerods, and with the scab, and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. Man, I'd be heading for the dermatologist ASAP. I don't know really what any of these things are, but they sure sound nasty. Botch and scab and itch and emerods. Oh, that's the same one that the Philistines are, are worried about right now. That's, they're feeling it. Now, emerods, some have said it's some kind of tumor, some kind of boil, some kind of bad skin condition. Others have said, oh, it's more specific than that. Emerod sounds a lot like hemorrhoid. And in fact, our word for hemorrhoid comes from the French, and it goes back to, this is a trans, kind of a transliteration, that it really would, could have been just hemorrhoids, uh, which again, doesn't sound uh, very pleasant. Uh, can, I, can I have the botch instead? I don't know. Anyway, the, the Philistines are suffering some kind of plague that is spreading out from Ashdod. Where, and that's, how does this happen? It didn't start. Again, we're going to do some contract tra contact tracing. It seemed to start when the, when the God of Israel came into town. And he's been throwing Dagon down every night. And now he's spreading pestilence. Oh, no, that's what he did in Egypt. Uh, is the botch next? Uh, we we got to steer clear of this. So for the rest of chapter 5, they start playing hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. Like, we want to keep the trophy, but we don't want to keep the emeralds. And so um, send it to Gaza. No, send it to Gath. No, send it to Ashkelon. Send it to Ash Get it away from us. But can we still kind of keep it around? Does that sound like Pharaoh? All these problems that the, keeping the, the, Egypt, the Israelite slaves are causing me, but uh, can I, I don't want to lose completely. And we sometimes treat our sins that way. Well, get them a little further away, but keep them close so that once my, my botch is, is cleared up, once my hemorrhoids, my hemorrhoids subside, then uh, I still have the trophy case. Well, that's not going to work, and it certainly isn't working. And so you turn to chapter 6, and the Philistines, still freaking out about all this, start consulting their, their wise men, their soothsayers, their divines, and, and ask, what are we supposed to do? They come up with an interesting solution. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Like it, the problem is this God of Israel. We've trapped him in our temple. We got to send him home. So get rid of it uh, and send the ark back. Now it's strange the way they're going to do it. First, they're going to include with it a trespass offering, basically saying, uh, "Sorry." <laughs> uh, so here's what we took, and here's some extra. But this is what it is. Chapter six, verse four five golden emerods and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. There's five main Philistine cities, and so that's the five offerings that they're giving. Five golden emerods? I have no idea how you carve a hemorrhoid out of gold. So uh, we'll leave it at that. The five mice, that's weird too, because where does that come in? We haven't seen any of that. Some have actually suggested that since mice or rats, same word for the Hebrews, was something associated with this, 
Had they seen an infestation of rats take place around the same time that they brought the Ark of the Covenant home? Some scholars have actually suggested, forget hemorrhoids, is this bubonic plague? There's a botch that's going to leave a scab, right? Uh, the death in its wake. The, is it, and that's spread, as we saw, saw in the Black Death, uh, through, through rats. And so is this some sense of we're trying to quarantine, we're trying to clear things out, and so let's take whatever we can associate with this plague and turn it into some kind of, sorry we did this, and offering it back to the God of Israel and then sending it all back home. And that's exactly what they do. In fact, verse 5 of chapter 6, they say, Ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. So honor him. Peradventure he will lighten his hand from off you, and from off your gods, and from off your land. Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, when he had wrought wonderfully among them? Did they not let the people go, and they departed? So fellow Philistines, we've got to be smarter than the Egyptians were. Let my people go. Let the God of Israel go. And send whatever we can send. Just get it out. As we all should do. When we see that it is sin that is causing our suffering, then get rid of it. Send it away from you with whatever trespass offering you can give to God. In theirs, it was this thought of, what's everything I can think of that's associated with this sin? It's that giving an awareness I mentioned previously. Here's my false thinking. Here's my faulty reasoning. Here's my, my pride or my stubbornness or whatever it was that, here's my triggers. Here's the, the circle of, of the, the fields I was gleaning in. Uh, I'm just going to give it all up so I can try to fully live the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so I can keep the commandments and live a better life. That, there's some wisdom among these wise men of the Philistines. They then do this other interesting thing. The part of the kind of their ritual perspective, uh, we want to be away from this thing as far as we can. Uh, and I certainly don't want to go head into Israelite territory. So let's just put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And we'll put the golden emeralds and the golden mice in there too. And then we'll hitch... This is where the, the symbolism comes in on their mind. We'll hitch two milk cows to the cart. Two milk cows, in fact, that have never been yoked to anything. So they'll have no idea what they're doing. It's like, what's this thing on my neck? And why is there a cow right next to me? And why is this so heavy and hard to move forward? They're going to be rookie <laughs> oxen here. These are just milk cows alone. And there'll be no driver. And we'll just kind of go to the cows forward and see where they go. This will be a bit of a test. One last chance for Dagon to speak for himself if he can get his head back on the stump or act for himself if he can get his hands back together. Because if the milk cows, since they won't know what they're doing, if they just kind of wander around and go nowhere, then we'll know this is not the God of Israel. This was total coincidence that we suffered from these things. And we'll take the ark back and all will be well. If, on the other hand, these cows that don't know what they're doing seem to act like they know exactly what they're doing and exactly where they're going, if they head straight back to Israel with this box of Israel's God, then we'll know Israel's God had something to do with it. And we'll stir clear of that. Well, any guess what the cows do? <laughs> they start 
heading directly into Israelite territory. And the Philistines are just left aghast, going, wow, this really was God behind all of this. And as soon as it kind of crosses into Israelite territory, the men of the city where it passes in take the ark, of course, to guard it, but then take the cart it was in and chop it up into firewood, light it, take the two milk cows and slay them, slaughter them, and then put them on that, that roasting fire as burnt sacrifices. God, we are so sorry for what we've done that we have abandoned you and then we let you abandon us thinking that was you when it wasn't. I'm sorry. And can we make wrong things right? And so they offer this burnt offering. And yet, 50,000 Israelites are smitten, according to chapter 6, verse 19, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Here's an interesting detail. 50,000 casualties? Casualties out of curiosity? Is that all it was? Was it mere curiosity instead of covenant keeping, perhaps? Were they lifting the lid, wondering, is God really in there? Did they lift the lid to see that there were stone tablets filled with laws that they'd been breaking for a long time? Filled with a pot of manna that reminded them we haven't been living by the word of God and have been taking for granted what God has been providing for us? Do they peek in and see Aaron's rod and realize that it was no longer budding or giving almonds because there seemed to be a loss of priesthood power in Israel? Oh, how directly related is all of this? I don't know, but symbolically speaking, when you look in to see where you are falling short, oh, it is a plague, and there's a price to pay. They paid it. At the end of it, chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, the Israelites say, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? It's the same phrase that's used in the book of Revelation, describing this time of the shaking of earth. Who shall be able to stand? That's their, what's their concern? We're dropping like flies. The Philistines beat us, and then God beats them, but now God beats us, and what's going on? Is anybody going to be able to stand? But notice how they said it, before this holy Lord God. Well, there's the answer in your question. Be holy yourself, and you will stand before the God of holiness. They go on, and to whom shall he go up from us? They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yarim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. So just like the Philistines played hot potato with the ark, now you have some Israelites doing it. And the first ones, more curious than covenant, like, oh, we're all falling, like, dropping like flies. You guys from Kiriath-Yarim, come down and fetch it up. You take it. We're not holy. Maybe you will be. And that's where you get chapter 7. In verse 1, the men of Kiriath-Yarim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, there's no explanation why the ark wasn't taken all the way back to Shiloh where the tabernacle is. It's just here in this kind of border town closer to the Philistines. It's brought into a house. It's brought up to this man who lives on the hill. So at least they're trying to get it to a high and holy place. And he sanctifies his son to keep it. This is going to be more a guardian than a prophet or priest. We don't know much about this Abinadab or this Eliezer. 
Uh, and like I said, no explanation why it doesn't go back to Shiloh, where, where Samuel can, can be in charge of this thing. Some have suggested, well, Shiloh had lost its authority a long time ago. And yes, it's good that we have the ark back, but let's just keep it safe until God designates a new home for it. And that will end up being the temple of Jerusalem once David comes along. We're getting closer and closer to that moment. Uh, notice this, though, in verse 2. It came to pass, while the ark abode in Kiriath Yarim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It's staying there in this holding pattern for a long time. Why? Perhaps so that Israel has some time to change, to feel some godly sorrow and develop a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It also is going to give the boy Samuel some time to grow up, and that's important. Because by the time you get to verse 3, 20 years later, Samuel is old enough to lead. He spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, that's repentance, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. There's abandoning those former temptations. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If you can just get your heart right with God, then God will be back with you. So turn to him. And they did. And it worked. In verse 4, Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. There's loyalty. Thy people, my people. Thy God, my God. He's the only one I'll turn to. In verse 5, Samuel then said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. I wonder if that's a recognition that living water comes only from God, drawing it out of the wells of salvation. They fasted on that day. Is that another recognition that the bread of life only comes from the Lord? Here's the water. Here's the bread. We can have none of it if it doesn't come from thee. And then they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. There's the collective confession. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. He's making a change among them. And the hearts of Israel really do seem to be changing. Unfortunately, with Israel gathered there in Mizpah, the Philistines, those pesky enemies that always seem to be looking for an opportunity to come fight, see this as their opportunity. Wait, Israel's abandoned a lot of their territory. We come to this place, Mizpah? Well, let's go conquer anywhere else that we can find. And so they come up, and Israel is scared to death. Good reason. They lost the last round of battles. So they ask Samuel to please keep on praying. And he does. In verse 9, Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel. And best of all, the Lord heard him. And of course, the Lord's going to hear Samuel. Samuel always heard the Lord. Speak for thy servant heareth. In verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them and they were smitten before Israel. And the Israelites chased them down and smite them. But they should have known I'm sure they did. This battle belonged to the Lord. Remember, something's going to happen. Your ears are going to tingle. Well, there's the loss of 
Eli and his household, but also tingling. How about thundering from God to the point that the Philistine army freaks out, hearing this artillery from heaven and run and flee and, and end up getting beaten by the Israelite army. To remind them of that, since the pride cycle seems to spin pretty quick and people have a way to, of forgetting things fast. Verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Eben-Ezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. The chapter then ends with Israel regaining all the territory, that, or most of the territory that they'd lost to the Philistines earlier. And then Samuel traveling throughout the tribes of Israel to judge the people, to judge them in righteousness. And there this week's material really ends. Now, Ebenezer, we would pronounce it Ebenezer. And that name comes from this, this word. Eben means stone, and that's exactly what Samuel had done. He took a stone and set it there. We see a lot of that. Memorials all around Israel. And a lot of them are uh, rocks that are piled up across Jordan and so on, right? Well, this stone, this Eben, was a reminder of the Ezer they received from God. And Ezer means help. When Adam realized that it was not good for man to be alone, and he realized he needed an help, that was equal to him, meet with, for him, corresponding to his divine potential, when he realized he needed enabling power, grace from God, God gave him an help. He sent an Azer. Help meet is Azer Kenigdo. And here's an Eben Azer, a stone of help. And it's divine help that's being commemorated. That's what Eve and every spouse is meant to be for one another. Someone that helps us the way God helps us. Now, there's something about this stone of help. Israel had to learn that they needed help the hard way. Maybe that's why it needed to be a stone. They're so hard-hearted and thick-skulled. But this was a lesson they would always need to remember. And so set the stone, set it in stone that we need the help of God at every moment. And we'll call it Ebenezer, from that moment on. Now, when I was on my mission, I had a companion that was an amazing singer, and he introduced me or helped me fall in love even more deeply to a hymn that uh, was not in our hymn book at the time. It's called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he had a tape, this is the old days, okay? He had a cassette tape with songs, I think, from BOU's Men's Chorus or something like that. And they sang that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and we loved it. Anytime we were in the car, we'd listen to that song all the time. It pumped us up. But there was a line in the second verse, I believe, that we never understood. Because it says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And I'm like, what, what is that? The only Ebenezer I knew was Scrooge. And I'm like, who's going to raise an Ebenezer? And it was so funny. We, were so, we knew it couldn't be Ebenezer because that made no sense at all. And so we would rewind and replay and rewind and replay so many times because we're like, what is it saying there? It sounds like Ebenezer, but it, since it can't be that, what, what, here I raise my, what? Until later, I don't even know when, we realized, no, it is Ebenezer. They are raising their Ebenezer, but it's not Scrooge. 
it's a God that's the opposite of Scrooge. One that is so willing to open the windows of heaven and pour down his blessings to help us. And so as we conclude today's lesson with Samuel's stone of help, can we be reminded of that prayer and petition in Come Thou Fount of every blessing? In that second verse, the confusing one that hopefully is no longer confusing. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I don't know of a better verse to describe what Israel has been dealing with for a long, long time. The rounds of the pride cycle, where they do so well and are delivered by some judge, and then their hearts wander as they were prone to, and they wander away from God into their own destruction. You have a Ruth and a Naomi and a Boaz holding out hope. Here's a fixed point to, to concentrate on throughout all of your spinning. You see a Hophni and Phineas whose hearts more than wandered. They completely walked away and rejected God. But you here see Samuel. And we'll spend more time with him next week. Trying his very best to take the heart of Israel and to soften it and then to turn it to the stone of their help. Back to God. I pray that we can do likewise and give God a broken heart that he can then seal. Seal up to him. And I know he will if we will say with Ruth, I want God's people to be my people. I want God to be my God. I testify that if we will claim him, then he will claim us. And whithersoever we go, he will go.